Hey, welcome everybody to the Gray Zone. It's Max Blumenthal. I'm here with Aaron Mate and another expert guest. Today, we have Scott Ritter, former UN's weapon inspector, UN weapons inspector, probably needs no introduction for our regular viewers. And is someone who brings a wealth of expertise, uh, milita military expertise, political expertise. He's been in the room. He's been, uh, he's jousted with the president, Joe Biden, back when Biden was, I would say, much more articulate. Um, and we're going to just jump right into a discussion of what's happening or what we know about what's happening in the Ukraine-Russia war. Welcome, Scott. I wanted to first ask you, we're hearing a lot of mixed reporting, but generally one side of the narrative, which is echoing kind of the Ukrainian government side in US media, which is that this plucky underdog, David, fighting the Russian Goliath in Ukraine is holding off the Russian advance around Kiev and is doing serious damage to the Russian military machine in the east. That seems to be different from what I'm seeing on um, Telegram, including Russian uh, language channels on Telegram, as well as uh, alternative media and uh, what what seems to be fairly obvious. Uh, but what's your read of what's happening right now? Is Russia winning or has its uh, strategy completely collapsed? Well, let me, let me start off with the caveat that unlike apparently the um, former generals who provide expert opinion on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox, um, I don't have uh, access to the Russian plan. Yeah. Um, I mean, I keep hearing that uh, the, this 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 in invasion, this incursion hasn't gone according to plan. I have yet to see the plan. Um, I, you know, so I I'm, I'm operating at a disadvantage there. Um, I can't compare what what's happening with the plan that everybody speaks of. I also don't have access to the Russian playbook because apparently every day I'm told that this is straight out of the Russian playbook. Um, I, I don't have the Russian plan. I've studied the Russian military for 35 years. I spent a lot of time training to close with and destroy the Soviet military in combat. Um, I think I know a lot about them, but I don't have their playbook. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at a disadvantage again on, on that. What I, what I can say is uh, I come from the school of uh, interaction with the, the Russians uh, that uses the concept of trust but verify, meaning that I'm going to listen to what the Russians are saying and I'm going to go with that until it's been uh, shown to, to, to be otherwise. The Russians have said going in that they are not seeking to occupy Ukraine. And this is a huge, a huge fact uh, that, that we need to focus on when we talk about the Russian operation. They are not there to occupy Ukraine. And, you know, the configuration of forces sustains this uh, normal military math has uh, attackers seeking a three-to-one advantage over defenders. So for every Ukrainian out there, you, you'd like to have three Russians um, lined up against them. Ukrainians, the, the Russians brought together around 200,000 uh, men spread out over you know, a, a wide area surrounding uh, Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians had a standing army of 260,000 highly trained, well-equipped, well-led professional soldiers. Uh, and they were backed up by over 320, 330,000 reservists and security forces, police forces, interior troops, et cetera. So Russia's going into this with a one to three disadvantage. That is, for every single Russian soldier out there, there's three Ukrainian defenders. 
Now, under normal circumstances, this would be suicide. Um, but you, you have to listen to what the Russians said. The Russians are not engaged in a battle of territorial acquisition. Normally, when you seek to occupy somebody, you seek to seize territory, hold territory. The territory becomes important. Russia has two stated military objectives, the first of which is denazification. That is to destroy the military units that are aligned with neo-Nazi, ultra-nationalist political forces uh, in Ukraine, units like the Azov Battalion, units like the Don Battalion and others of that ilk. Um, the Russians are seeking them out and destroying them on the field of battle as we speak. The second is demilitarization. That is, Russia has recognized that the Ukrainian military uh, is a de facto proxy of NATO. It has been trained uh, for uh, you know, the past seven years uh, by U.S. forces, NATO forces at training facilities in Ukraine, training facilities out of Ukraine um, to, uh, to be interoperable with NATO, meaning that you can take a NATO-trained battalion of Ukrainian soldiers, unplug them from Ukraine, plug them into a NATO exercise in Germany, and they'll function seamlessly. They have the same command and control, the same training, the same tactics, et cetera. Russia views this as a proxy of NATO and has said this must be dismantled. Russia gave the Ukrainian military the opportunity to do this peacefully. Stay in your barracks. We're going to come in and we're going to get rid of all that NATO-provided junk that you were given. It's actually pretty good equipment. Um, but, I mean, that you know that's the process of demilitarization. Or... You can seek to meet us on the field of battle and we'll do it old school. And unfortunately for both sides, the Ukrainians have chosen old school. Now, what does old school mean? Let's come back to what I said at the beginning. This isn't the Iraqi military. This isn't a military that stood up to the United States in 1991 and got destroyed on the field of battle, annihilated, and then spent the next decade plus unable to reconstitute itself because of economic sanctions and therefore went up against the world's finest combined arms fighting force in 2003 with nothing. And still put up a pretty good fight, by the way. But my point is, the Ukrainian military is the exact opposite. These are highly trained, highly educated people who have been put through the ropes by, by their NATO trainers. You know, there's an interesting slide that the Department of Defense put out there. It shows the, 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 the NATO training facility uh, in Western uh, Ukraine that was bombed the other day. Um, and it says, we train up to five Ukrainian battalions a year to NATO standards. And then they have a yellow arrow that goes over here and shows the Donbass so that they can fight the Russians over here. That's 40 <laughs> battalions trained by NATO for the sole purpose of killing Russians in Donbass. This is the uh, the base that's referred to kind of as the international peacekeeping center that was close to Correct. the Polish border where possibly 100 foreign fighters from the so-called foreign legion were killed that you're referring to. But what Russia has maintained and what was pretty apparent was that this was a de facto NATO base inside Ukraine, which is technically not a member of NATO. So you're talking about de facto NATOization being the main factor in this war. Absolutely. It's the it's the ultimate objective. I mean, Russia, this war is about this war was was predicated by NATO's um, appetite for eastern expansion uh, the expansion uh, eastward to include Ukraine. Russia has long said this is a red line. 
Uh, William Burns, the former U.S. ambassador, wrote a memo after the 2008 Bucharest conference that formally invited uh, Ukraine and Georgia that said, "Niet means yet, no means no. Uh, and he accurately outlined the Russian objectives. He said these objectives actually are, are solid, meaning they, they're not fanciful. We, we have to take this seriously. And he said, and this was written, I believe, in February of 2009, he said, if we fail to respect the Russian position, they will eventually be compelled to take military action that will destroy Ukraine, and Ukraine will lose Crimea and the Donbass as a result. Now, this is before 2014, before uh, you know the, the 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 annexation of Crimea became reality, before Russian separatists uh, you know decided to peel away uh, Donbass, uh, the, the Donbass. Uh, in 2009, it was recognized that you know Ukraine has a Russian Achilles heel, uh, the, the, the Donbass in, in Crimea, that it's going to lose if it tries to join NATO, and in the process, it will be destroyed. A U.S. ambassador who is today, by the way, a well-respected director of the CIA, um, so this isn't some has-been, this isn't Michael McFall or somebody of this nature, this is this is a guy who still you know, has cards in the game, chips he's playing with real chips, um, said, we have to take this seriously. And we didn't. We expanded. We expanded. No means no. And we're finding out what the Russian definition of no is today. And no is we're going to go in and we're going to denazify, demilitarize Ukraine for the purpose of achieving Ukrainian neutrality, um, which is the political objective, the ultimate political objective. Russia is winning this fight. People say, I just, well, wanted, I just wanted to share something before I toss to Aaron based on uh, your comments about the International Peacekeeping Center, which is uh, obviously a ridiculous name for the base. But this is a um, <laughs> this is the International Peacekeeping and Security Center in Ukraine before Russia struck it. Our colleague Alex Rubenstein tweeted this. Uh, here's a uh, Ukrainian soldier training with two American soldiers at the base because it is effectively a NATO base. And they're both black American soldiers. And the trainee. Uh, Geo tagged himself Zimbabwe to mock the race of the black soldiers. And then he posted uh, 1488, referring to the 14 words of the dead uh, neo-Nazi, American neo-Nazi, David Lane, and 88, which stands for Heil Hitler. So this is this is kind of what's going on at the base since you also mentioned denazification. Um, go ahead, Aaron. Well, I have a clip I want to play of Go Zelensky talking about what you just talked about, Scott, and get your response to it. This is Zelensky on Sunday speaking to Fareed Zakaria, and he kind of gave away the game when it comes to the role of NATO expansion here. Listen to what he, listen to what he said. Requested them personally to, to say directly that we are going to accept you into NATO or NATO in a year or two or five. To say it directly and clearly or just say no. And the response was very clear. You are not going to be a NATO EU member, but publicly the doors will remain open. Requested them personally to take. So just to repeat that, that's Zelensky saying that I asked NATO, presumably he means the US, for a direct answer on whether or not Ukraine will be admitted. And what he was told is that you will never join NATO, but publicly the doors will remain open. I'm wondering, Scott, your reaction to that. Well, you know, this isn't the first time that this has happened. Uh, one goes back to 2008 and the decision by Mikhail uh, um, Saakashvili, the president of Georgia, to uh, launch a military incursion 
into South Ossetia, uh, which from a Georgian perspective is a Georgian um, Republic and, and, and to return this territory to Georgian sovereign control. He had been in uh, negotiations with the United States about this, uh, Susan Rice, who at the time I believe was um, either the National Security Advisor or the Secretary of State, um, and or not Susan Rice, Condi Rice. And, um, and from his perspective, he was told that the US is going to be there for him, that NATO will be there. <laughs> Uh, and he went in and uh, found out the hard way that, nope, they, they aren't there for you. And his military got smashed around a little bit. Um, and, you know, it cost him <laughs> a lot. He later humiliated uh, Miss Rice in person when she came to visit, where he called her out. He, he, there's a videotape where he said, you told me you'd be there. We went in because you told me you'd be there and you abandoned us. And she was embarrassed by this. But the point is, why would Saakashvili believe this when there's no doubt in my mind that the U.S. said, um, you know, we're not going to be there for you. Well, the reason why he believed that is because prior to this, the United States military was in Georgia training the Georgian military to U.S. and NATO standards. The Georgians were deploying forces into Iraq. In fact, when that war happened, they had an entire brigade of U.S. trained forces, their best forces in Iraq that they had to bring back to, uh, to, to, to try and defend Tbilisi if the Russians went on. They went into Afghanistan. Georgians had bled, died in both conflicts. And the Georgians believe that yeah, we paid a blood price. And therefore, our fellow warriors who we train with uh, are never going to abandon us. And, and, you know, that's not an unfounded thought. When you train this close, this intense with American service members, you get good ties with them. But these guys don't understand that the American service members have no say when it comes to policy, um, that they might be well-meaning when they talk about how how there's a military brotherhood, uh, they don't get to decide whether or not they go in and defend you. And there's no doubt in my mind that Zelensky was operating under the same thing, where his military guys were saying, and we are so tight with the Americans. We train like this. We're brothers. And, um, you know, they're not going to abandon us. Our brothers would never abandon us. They told me, we will be there for you. Zelensky went, all right, let's, let's push this thing. Let's let the Russians come in. Let's sucker them in. And then everybody will come to our assistance because that's what brothers do. Well, no, the military doesn't get to make the call. The politicians do. And then Zelensky has learned the, 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 the Saakashvili um, you know, law, rule. Never trust the Americans because the Americans will never be there for you. It's something that Ashraf Ghani learned in Afghanistan as well. But what is the, what is the U.S.-NATO politician's motive in saying to Zelensky, you're never going to get in, but publicly we're going to leave the door open. Thereby, we're never going to agree to the key Russian demand that could have prevented this war. <laughs> you just you just hit it on the head. Uh, never going. We are not going to be seen as giving in to Russia. Um, and now you ask yourself, well, isn't that sort of stupid to talk about you know tension and perpetuity? Um, you know, I think in 2019, Rand Corporation published a study uh, that listed I think seven destabilizing. Uh, factors. Now, the, before I go into the, 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 this, understand that Rand just doesn't gin up studies on its own. That's not how think tank business works. The think tank business works because somebody in the Department of Defense or the Department of State said, we want you to write a study about a very pressing policy problem. How do we destabilize Russia? How do we? And so they wrote it and said, these are the tossing. The number one thing, Ukraine. Number one, overextending, unbalancing Russia. There it is. And the number one um, uh, uh, 
thing on the on the on the list was Ukraine. Ukraine is the trap, so to speak. There's so many Americans today that think they can recreate Afghanistan in Ukraine uh, to suck Russia into a conflict in Ukraine that will destroy Russia the way Afghanistan destroyed the Soviet Union. Because at the end of the day, we need to understand that the policy of the United States towards Russia has been since Michael McFaul became Obama's uh, Russia expert on the National Security Council, regime change. When I say regime change, I mean get rid of Vladimir Putin. If you go back and take a look at the reset policy, remember that embarrassing red button that they pushed that was spelled wrong, meant something totally different? Um, That was about empowering Dmitry Medvedev, who had taken over as president from Putin. Putin had been relegated to prime minister because of constitutional issues. Um, These idiots actually thought that Medvedev was a real president. And they thought that if they went in there and suddenly opened up the floodgates in terms of supporting Russia, uh, you know, doing what Russia wants, working with Russia, being a partner with Russia, that the Russian people would say, Dmitry Medvedev, who nobody knows anything about, by the way, just sort of thrown in here to be president. And everybody understood what the deal was. There's not a single Russian alive who didn't know what the deal was. But the Americans apparently didn't know what the deal was. And we were trying to empower Medvedev to stab Putin in the back. And uh, you, we, we saw how that worked. Uh, when the time came, Medvedev saluted smartly, took three steps backwards, and Putin resumed his position as president of, uh, of Russia. But Putin knew because the, look, at, look at how mad the United States was. Hillary Clinton went on the offensive. Remember in the election, I think it was December of 2011, where she was encouraging people to rise up in the streets to, uh, to disrupt the election, to overthrow Putin. The United States was, in, was just curious about and what did this lead to? This led to Maidan. You say, well, that's Ukraine. Ukraine has always been the, the keystone to the American concept of destabilizing uh, Russia. Ukraine has been the keystone. And you know what? You reap the wind or you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. And we're reaping the whirlwind right now because Russia didn't take the bait. They reversed the bait. I mean, everything Russia is doing right now um, has, has, is a clear indication, at least from my assessment, that they have recognized this trap for years and they have built the game, positioned themselves so that it's not them who have been sucked into a trap. It is NATO who sucked into a trap. You want to know the proof? Look at NATO's panic meeting today. Panicked meeting. They talk about NATO unity. There is no NATO unity. NATO is a scared organization right now that doesn't know what to do. And then Russia just umped the ante because this isn't just about the military. There's this whole economic aspect to it. Remember how Joe Biden bragged about staring Putin in the eyes. Remember the hardened killer that he was? And, um, and he said, if you invade Ukraine, we will impose the world's greatest stringent, massive economic program. And he sort of hinted at what they're going to do. We're going to cut you off from SWIFT. We're going to seize your assets. We're going to do all this. And Putin went, all right, thanks. Then Putin went back to Moscow and said, all right, we got their game plan. What do we do? And they built a game plan and they just played a big card today. Did you see what Putin did? He's declaring that the EU will have to buy gas and oil in rubles. In rubles. And that is just massive. It's <laughs> it's like, a, you, you will freeze if you don't buy it in rubles. And also it's it, a freeze. It looks, 
You'll starve yeah. to death. Everything, everything you think you enjoy in life, this wonderful Western lifestyle that you have, is gone. Goodbye, this Vidania. Because once again, the Americans lied to Europe. Remember Biden telling everybody, we got a plan, guys. We got a plan. Don't worry about gas. We'll get you all the gas you need. Don't worry about oil. We'll get you all the oil you need. And then when the time came, the Americans went, yeah, no, I'm sorry, we don't have a plan. There isn't any oil. There isn't any gas. America's running around right now, Operation 10 Cup, going on their knees to Venezuela. I mean, to Venezuela, to Nicolas Maduro, who we tried several times to overthrow with a coup, and then we embarrassingly appoint Juan Guaido as president. We then send James Story, the poor ambassador that's in the middle of this, crawling on his knees saying, we need your oil. Yeah. Maduro's yeah. considering right now, but he's not playing this game. Iran. This Iran nuclear deal was dead in the water. We weren't going anywhere with this. You know, sunset clauses, um, malign activity, ballistic missiles, all worst these- Worst terrorists in the world. There. You are the worst people in the world, the scum of the earth. We're never, oil. Yeah, boys, let's lock this deal down. We're in, yeah. we're yeah. in, all in. You blew up a, a Saudi Arabia Ramco facility, shame on you, but we're still in. Oh, you and and they're, they're, they're now saying- They'll We're remove the IRGC from the uh, ter- the State Department yeah. terror list. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, they're not terrorists anymore. Don't worry about it. We're all in because we need your oil. We don't have a plan B. Algeria, gas. Nope, they ain't selling gas. Nobody's selling gas. If they do sell gas, it's not going to be enough. Germany right now, I, I won't use the terms that I wanted to use, but they're doing something to a brick. Okay? it's <laughs> they're, they're defecating a brick because they recognize and it's all over. France, and, it's all over. And what was over. the point of, Scott, what was the point of sanctioning Russia's central bank if they're not going to be allowed to, if they're not going to be forced to default on their loans? Like, that's <laughs> not the happening. We're the dumbest people in the world. That's why. I mean, literally, I, I can't think of anybody dumber than um, uh, the, 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 the head of the Office of Foreign Asset Control or uh, the Sanctions Department in the Department of Treasury. First of all, they don't know anything about economists. These are people who are picked. All these people right now in the U.S. government that are advising uh, you know, Biden and company on Russia aren't Russian experts. That's the first thing we have to understand. We got rid of the last Russian experts years ago. We've replaced them with ideologues who have bought into this politicized notion of autocrats, of dictatorships. Look at the, I've studied the PhD theses of every single one of these idiots up there. And every single one of them are written about how evil Vladimir Putin is. You can't get into the U.S. government today, whether it's the CIA, the State Department, anywhere, unless you've published something that says Vladimir Putin is evil. If you've done that, you're brought into the club. These are people who don't know Russia, don't know Russian history, don't have an appreciation of Russian culture, and they darn sure can't think like a Russian. And so they've come up with this stupidity of, we're going to seize... Russia's sovereign wealth fund. And you no one ever for once said, what are the Russians going to do? I mean, the first question I would have asked is, why is Russia keeping their sovereign wealth fund in foreign banks that can be frozen? Isn't this a little too, I mean, in the military, they teach you, if everything's going the way you think it's supposed to go, it's an ambush. Stop. Because nothing's supposed to be easy. If the Russians have made it this easy, there's a problem. And what they did is now Russia went, by seizing our assets, you have defaulted 
to Russia. And therefore, you will now buy everything in Russian rubles. <laughs> game over. It's literally game over because the U.S. doesn't have a plan B. We don't have people when, hey, we were expecting that move and here's our counter move. Right now we have people going, hey, they can't do that, can they? They, they can't do that. Well, Germany's going to find out because Germany's going to say, well, we don't want to. <laughs> and the rest of them, then you don't get any gas. And then all the German companies shut down. Michelin tires, uh, they, they shut down. They can't afford to stay open. As the price of energy goes up, the economy of Europe is going to collapse, literally collapse. And Europe is a heavily subsidized, uh, you know, so is the, the social contract between the electorate and the elected is heavily subsidized. I mean, there's a lot of bribery going on in the form of government subsidies. You know, those government subsidies are going to disappear. And the first thing I've learned in a democracy is when you um, irritate the constituent, you tend not to stay in office very long. And because most of these places are parliamentary in, 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 in nature, they can have votes of no confidence. I mean, in the United States, we're stuck with Biden. You either impeach him or you, you know, you're in for the four-year ride. Um, in, in Europe, a vote of no confidence. And trust me, there's going to be a lot of no confidence going on this summer. A lot. Yeah. We all, people in the U.S. only get to wave let's go Brandon flags. There's no votes of no confidence. But uh, Aaron, you <laughs> wanted to... <laughs> You, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure there's the confidence just overflowing for Olaf Scholz in Germany after his Munich speech and what he did there. Uh, they're going to be really happy next winter. Um, Aaron, you wanted to throw up the clip on. Well, yeah, there's there's a headline today in the Financial Times. Olaf Scholz warns immediate Russian energy ban would trigger recession in Europe. So I'm wondering, Scott, where do you think that leads? The fact that uh, politicians in Europe like Olaf Scholz are dealing with the consequences of this, what position that puts them in, and then how that will impact the outcome of, of the war in Ukraine. Well, Russia's been extremely smart in not shutting off the uh, spigots. Um, you know, I thought that maybe one of the first cards they play would be to just shut it all down and get the immediate impact on that. But um, Vladimir Putin is a patient man, um, and he, he has done what you know a lot of people were talking about before this that you know russia plays the the energy card they weaponize energy i think uh, history is going to show that russia didn't weaponize anything <laughs> the, the, the west weaponized energy and uh, all russia's done is play that game they didn't start this fight but they're going to finish this fight these uh these european countries that are so important to the to this sanctions program are now in a um they're 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 caught between the horns of a dilemma. They either continue to support the sanctions, um, and Russia will say you've defaulted, uh, and we we now are shutting off the gas, not because we want to shut it off, but because you're not paying. And then, as imminent as uh, the German chancellor has noted, imminent economic collapse, or. We got to go and uh, we, we got to crawl to the Russian market and we got to start buying rubles uh, so we can pay for gas. And in doing so, we empower the ruble. I mean, just take a look at what the ruble's doing today. Uh, I mean, a, a couple, you know, was it a week ago? It was 140 rubles to the dollar. Today, I think it's down to you know, 87 and dropping. Um, you know, the, the at this rate, <laughs> you know, I'm going to have my relatives send me rubles instead of me sending them dollars. Uh, you know, the ruble is going to be worth so much. But the uh, 
it, this is a lose-lose proposition for Europe. And in the end, they're going to pick the loss that causes sanctions to collapse because no politician willingly commits political suicide. And to continue uh, supporting sanctions that will result in the economic demise violates uh, James Carville's number one rule of politics. It's the economy, stupid. And um, they're all about to learn that this is the biggest truth there is right now. So, yeah, and, and Putin timed this perfectly because as we're speaking, there's an emergency summit in Brussels where NATO is getting together to discuss some pretty dangerous things like Poland saying, we want to send a peacekeeping force into Western Ukraine. Now, this is predictable. I, I predicted this a week ago. You're going to have, you know, as soon as that 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 refugee threshold reaches around six to seven million, uh, you've saturated Europe. They can't take any more. And they're going to keep coming. 10 million, 12 million, 15 million, depending on what Russia does next, 20 million. Uh, and they're going to be piling into Europe and Europe can't handle it. So Europe's going to demand some sort of refugee safety zone on the Ukrainian side of the border where they can build these camps, supply these people. But in order to do that, they, they want to, the Poles want to project the peacekeeping force in there to secure that. This peacekeeping force will be immediately engaged and destroyed by the Russians. It will have literally no chance of survival. Um, now people say, well, that's all about nuclear war. No, as Peskov said last night in his interview with, um, with um, Christian Amanpour on CNN, Russia has published, and I've read it, I've written about it, a nuclear posture review. And in the nuclear posture review, Russia is very specific about the conditions under which nuclear weapons will be employed. Most of them involve people using nuclear weapons against Russia. But there is one, for instance, when conventional forces um, attack Russia in a way that threatens the existential survival of Russia. And if that's the case, Russia would respond with nuclear weapons. Now, this is generally thought to mean that if NATO puts 400,000 troops in the Baltics uh, and then they launch an attack against uh, St. Petersburg and are driving down on Moscow, that this would be an existential threat and Russia would use nuclear weapons. What it doesn't mean is a, is a tank battle on the, on the plains of Ukraine. Russia ain't going to war over the Ukraine and a nuclear war. Russia is more than ready to take NATO on and crush them. You know, one of the reasons why Russia is is having a hard time against the Ukrainians is that they don't want to annihilate them. Um, trust me, if the Russians wanted to kill these Ukrainians in the numbers necessary to bring about their immediate demise, they would apply, uh, for instance, a massive barrage of thermobaric weapons on the Ukrainian positions, sucking the literal life out of every one of their lungs, and then they would roll over them. But Russia's not doing that. Russia's doing intense infantry fighting, that's costing Russia a lot of casualties. Um, they, they lose a lot of their advantages. If Russia goes to war against NATO, the gloves are off, man. It's, it's, it's hardcore, you know, bare fist war. And, you, you know, Russia uh, deployed a, a new weapon this week, the, the Kenzal. And people are like, well, why did you use the Kenzal? Um, well, the reason why they used the Kenzal isn't because they were trying to intimidate Ukraine, trust me. Zelensky is plenty intimidated right now. You don't need the Kinzal to do it. Uh, they didn't do it to, um, to strike a target that couldn't be struck by any other weapon. The, the, the caliber cruise missile has shown itself to be very effective at taking out uh, sites. They deployed it to show to NATO that 
This is what happens. Remember, everybody took uh, when Putin said, if you get involved in Ukraine, you will pay a price that you have never paid before. Everybody went, oh, my God, he's threatening nuclear war. Nope. He's threatening to introduce you to Mr. Kinzal, who will come in and take out NATO headquarters, come in and take out the, the, the British Ministry of Defense headquarters, take out the French defense headquarters, take out all of NATO's headquarters, because nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop it. And that was the point they were making. Hey, guys, we're going to fire this. Got all your radars turned on. Look at it. Think about it. Chew on it. Because if you want a war with Russia, this is coming. And you got nothing. You got nothing to stop it. I want to I want to piggyback off the uh, comment that you just made about the technology Russia's employing in the field. Uh, Lloyd Austin has said that um, the discussion of uh, the Russian use of a hypersonic missile is a distraction. However, Joe Biden said there's no way to stop this missile. I actually recently heard uh, Wes Clark talking to a think tank, and he was panicking about the inability of Patriot batteries to do anything about hypersonic missiles, not because they come in faster than an ICBM, but because you can actually change their trajectory to maneuver around the Patriot battery. So how serious of a threat to, uh, to NATO's ability to deter Russia is the hypersonic missile? What was the point of its use in Ukraine? And, I, and Aaron wanted to, was throwing up a graphic that I think I think we can get into it next uh, about the strategy. I, I also had a question about Russia's military strategy uh, in contrast and contrasting it to the Americans. But what are your thoughts on the hypersonic missile? Look, Lloyd Austin is is in spin mode. I mean, uh, we're we're not getting a frank conversation from Lloyd Austin and Wesley Clark is Wesley Clark. Uh, he was relevant decades ago. Yeah, I think uh, he can be more candid than Austin is what I'm saying. Well, he can be, but he doesn't know. He's not plugged in. Yeah. Um, uh, Wesley Clark doesn't know what the uh, last uh, Patriot Pack 3 performance test showed. He right. doesn't know right. what this recent soft grade up where, uh, upgrade to the Patriot uh, can, 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 can provide in terms of performance. But the Patriot um, is not configured to take out a hypersonic maneuvering warhead. It's not that the warhead will maneuver around the Patriot coverage. It can, but it's that's not it. It's that it's maneuvering and the Patriot can't keep up with it. Um, you know, the Patriot needs to get a predictable, in order to fire, you have to, you have to track, you have to predict a point of impact and fire a missile that's going to do the impact. Now, the Patriot might have some ability once it's fired to lock on and do some maneuvering of its own. But at the end of the day, you've got to cue it, orient it, and fire it. And by the time they've cued, orient, and fired, the, the Kenzal is doing something else. And um, so the Patriot can't touch it. The THAAD, the theater, the theater high altitude air defense system, can't touch it. Nothing can touch it. Nothing whatsoever. And that was the point of firing these weapons is, is to show NATO that this is this is game set match. That if you want to go to war with Russia, uh, understand that we have the ability to make your cities burn in a conventional manner, in a conventional manner, and and you can't stop us. So if you want to dance, let's dance. Otherwise, stay out of our way. And I'm I can guarantee you that's a conversation they're having in in Brussels as we speak. 
One thing we're hearing from Brussels, Scott, is this uh, escalating fear-mongering about Russia using chemical weapons. The NATO Secretary General warned about this today. Joe Biden is now talking about it. A number of NATO officials are talking about it. I'm wondering what you make of this. All of a sudden, we're getting these claims coming from NATO that they have intelligence of Russia possibly plotting chemical weapons attacks inside Ukraine. <laughs> well, uh, let's 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 start with the the obvious. Um, for Russia, let, let's hypothetically say that Russia has a weaponized chemical what cap, uh, weapons capability or biological weapons capability. Um, Russia knows that they cross that line. They're changing the dynamic of of, of their Ukrainian gambit. Um, Russia went into Ukraine not just to get Ukrainian neutrality, not just to denazify, not just to de demilitarize, but to redefine the European security framework. And in order to redefine it in a way that is conducive to a Russian outcome, you, you need to create the condition where NATO starts to question itself, starts to question its own viability, question the cost uh, of, of maintaining its current posture, et cetera. Um, so it's counterintuitive for Russia to use weapons that would only bring NATO together. And it's even more counterintuitive for Russia to use these weapons when Russia is winning. So why is NATO saying what they're saying? We'll start with the, the, the obvious one. NATO or the United States got caught out with these biological research facilities. Um, I mean, I've, I've, I've been aware of these. I know the, I, I know the guys who ran who program managers. I, you know, I'm, these are not new to me. Um, and I've always talked to them about, you know, what, what's going on here? Um, you know, what's really going on here? Uh, why do you need these biological research facilities in Ukraine? I understand the need to capture former Soviet biological warfare capability uh, to uh, account for and dispose of uh, former Soviet uh, biological weapons pathogens that might have been retained, and to provide gainful employment to uh, these scientists so they don't go sell their skill set to North Korea, Iran, any other so-called rogue actor that might be in the market. I don't think Iran's in the market. Um, you know, I don't know what North Korea is doing. This is a purely hypothetical statement. But the point is, um, I understand all that. I also understand that you might want to uh, build a modern uh, level three research facility to uh, provide capabilities that can't be found in the existing Soviet era facilities. But 26? Why do you need 26? What is the purpose of these? And again, a, a little bit of my background, you know, I, I was a firefighter here in New York for, for a number of years. And um, one of the things I did was uh, hazmat, hazardous materials. I was a hazmat specialist, a hazmat technician. And I went to all the federal funded courses uh, to train uh, about, you know, weapons of mass destruction. So I went to Anniston, Alabama, where we trained on live VX and sarin nerve agent. Oh, wait a minute. How do you get live VX and sarin nerve agent? Somebody has to make it. But isn't the manufacture of live agent a violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention? Well, not if it's done for defensive purposes. But the fact that we can manufacture on a bench scale, um, <laughs> Sarin and VX nerve agent means we can manufacture on a large scale. Trust me, if we caught the Iraqis manufacturing 
VX and Sarah nerve agent on a bench scale for defensive purposes, we would have said you're in violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention and UN mandate to disarm. But we do it all the time. We bend the rules. The same thing with biological warfare. The anthrax that was discovered after 9-11 wasn't brought in by anybody, wasn't homemade. It was from a tube of anthrax that came from Dugway in, uh, in, in, in Utah that was manufactured so you can train people like me on how to operate in an anthrax environment. Uh, and, and so we we do this kind of stuff. Uh, we're always walking on the razor's edge of, um, of, of, of legality in terms of the treaties. And now we look at what the Russians have found. How do you explain a research program that seeks to take avian flu, a, you know, uh, HN1, remember the first pandemic <laughs> was, was avian bird flu, take avian flu and then adapt it so it can be vectored, carried by migratory birds who fly from Ukraine into Russia after having genetically modified the avian flu so that it only impacts Slavic DNA found DNA. in Russia. How is this defensive? How do you explain this? Because if this Scott, was wait, found Scott, anywhere wait, else- Scott, that's, the allegation, that's the allegation from Russia. Do you think that they've sufficiently proved it? it it's 100%. been confirmed, no doubt it's they been have confirmed the that that research was being carried out at yeah, labs yeah. under okay. the auspices of the Nunn-Luger agreement that yes. was specifically focused on, um, they were seeking research subjects who possessed Slavic DNA. It's in the paperwork. So, And, and you can track, because the paperwork is a contract and the contract is attached to dollars and the dollars are atta attached to legislation, this is easily tracked right down to where it is. The Russians aren't making this up. They got the receipts. Um, and now here's the problem. The U.S. knows they have the receipts, and who else knows what they're sitting on? So now the U.S. does the old game. The Russians are only accusing us because they're planning to use biological weapons themselves. I mean, that's the extent of the intelligence. There's no, we literally, I can tell you right now, we are not sitting on uh, communications intercepts that show that the Russians are preparing. This is somebody in the United States saying, well, if the Russians are saying this, what do you think that really means? And you have some intelligence analyst who hasn't been schooled on the reality of Russia, but instead been schooled to hate Putin, saying, well, if I were Vladimir Putin, that would mean that I'm planning a biological weapon because it's a page straight out of the Russian playbook, um, and I have insight into Vladimir Putin's plan. No. There is no biological plan, and the same now applies because because now we're talking about a hypothetical biological weapons attack. We have to throw in, of course, uh, Novichok and Skripal and Navalny. We have to take two two you know cases that have been made against Russia and say they are known purveyors of chemical warfare, and then we also have to bring in the Syrian playbook, uh, you know, and 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 bring back you know Kanshakun uh, and. Uh, Uma and all these other places and say they did it in, in Syria. Well, they didn't do it in Syria. <laughs> they, you know, who knows what happened in, with Skripal's? Who knows what happened with Navalny? But they aren't part of a, a, of a military weaponized chemical warfare program. This literally is manufactured clickbait by the United States government. There's no truth to it, none whatsoever. And is... I'm wondering if you think is part of the motive here, just like in Syria with the Syria playbook, to preserve the option of NATO military force, because that's what 
part of the agenda was with Syria and the red line in in uh, back in 2013. And it was only actually undermined or it was partly undermined by other people inside the Obama White House who knew that the intelligence was not there, that Syria was guilty. That's why James Clapper went to Obama and said it's not a slam dunk, deliberately choosing his words to invoke the Iraq war WMD claims of George Tenet. And they helped undermine Obama's claim. And we later learned from Seymour Hersh, there was a whole bunch of other evidence pointing to Sarin actually having been used by the rebels. But there were people inside the Obama White House who did want to preserve the option for military intervention, for greater military intervention in Syria. And the chemical weapons allegation was the way to advance that. And I'm wondering if you see a repeat there here as well. I can say that I have confidence in the senior military leadership that they know what the truth is. Um, I have confidence in the senior intelligence community leadership that they know what the truth is and that they will bend backwards to ensure that the political appointee advisors to Biden um, aren't allowed to manufacture a case for military intervention based upon fabricated uh, intelligence. Just like what happened, just like what happened in Syria. It's a, it's, a, it's a repeat of that. Now, but there's another factor here because that's a US only dynamic. What we have right now is this, and again, I, I wrote about this a while, Rob, I wrote an article called uh, The Article Four Trap. Uh, and I talked about how dangerous, everybody talks about Article Five, collective defense of NATO. That's a nothing, nothing uh, article. First of all, it means nothing. Everybody keeps talking about collective defense. There is no collective defense. Read the article. It says, if one nation is attacked by another, that all nations must consult <laughs> on what they want to do. And if they want to do something, and it doesn't have to be military, then they work with others to do it. There's no automatic, oh, you attack Poland, we automatically go to war. No, that's not how Article 5 works. Um, Article 4, though, is the one that actually got NATO involved in Serbia, the one that got NATO involved in Libya, got NATO involved in Iraq, the one that got NATO involved in Afghanistan. Article 4 is the consultation article, and it's already been invoked. Poland and the Baltics have invoked an Article 4 consultation a while back when Russia first went into Ukraine uh, to get NATO engaged on this threat to Polish security and Baltic security that now exists in Ukraine. So they've been having ongoing Article 4 uh, talks. And right now, Poland is hyping up the threat posed by Russia and the danger of the United States politically committing to a um, to a narrative such as chemical weapons, biological weapons, whatever, is that politically it's hard for them to back down. It's one thing to have a general go to the White House and whisper in the president's ear that this is a load of garbage. It's another thing for the president to be in Brussels having committed to this narrative and then being confronted by fe a fellow NATO members saying, oh, man, Russia is such a big deal. We have no choice now but to put a peacekeeping force into Western Ukraine. And so there's the danger that the United States may be getting caught in a trap of its own making, boxed into a corner based upon its own own rhetoric. Um, and you know, we're just living in a very dangerous time. This is, um, you know, we're fraught with uncertainty. The only thing that is certain, in my opinion, is the Russians are winning this war and they're winning it in a big way. Yeah, I mean, what what the, the other fa common factor 
or common thread between Syria and Ukraine is you have a very weakened uh, U.S.-backed fighting force on the ground, which is itself governed by elements that are far more extreme than those in in the maybe in the Biden White House who don't want a direct confrontation with Russia, and so they're tri- they're, they're pulling out all the stops. I mean. I wrote about how the supposed theater bombing in Mariupol was pretty obviously a staged event. It was controlled by the Azov Battalion. I mean, these are the uh, analog, the Ukrainian analog to the jihadist Al-Qaeda elements in Syria. And they're willing to do pretty much anything to get some emotional, dramatic event to stir up public pressure for intervention. In this case, though, it seems like they just let everyone go. Uh, they only had a few civilians there. Nobody was killed or injured, apparently. And Western media has kind of let it go after blaming Russia, and they're moving on to the next thing. And it is disturbing that Biden and and company are warning of an imminent Russian chemical attack. I think that goes hand in glove, hand in hand with this narrative that Russia is actually losing and getting des- desperate. They need to create the perception that Russia actually would do something that is, in fact, against its best interests not only militarily, but politically as well. And I'm also hearing some rumors, uh, you know, the theater bombing was forecast by a Russian reporter uh, citing local Mariupol residents. He first said that there is a Turkish built mosque in Mariupol that is being, uh, that, that there will be a false flag there. We found out that the claims that it was shelled were false soon after. And that um, in, in the coming days, there will be an attack on this theater. Now what I'm hearing from similar sources is a potential attack on U.S. personnel, U.S. diplomats in Lvov, uh, which is extremely troubling. Um, you know, we could see something other than a chemical attack in the coming days. But the clear agenda of Ukrainian forces and particularly the paramilitaries does seem to be something uh, to trigger greater involvement of the U.S. or an escalation um, so that's just my take, but my, my question would be which elements in Washington would be seeking such an escalation? It seems that Biden doesn't want it. As you said, military leadership doesn't want it, but who in the Biden administration is, seems to be pushing for such a thing if there are any such elements? Well, let's go back and use a quick uh, historical analogy. Um, I'll bring up again Iraq because I'm intimately familiar with with that uh, with that problem set. If you recall, in uh, 1992, uh, George H.W. Bush lost his bid for re-election to an upstart named William Jefferson Clinton, and um, I remember there was a um, there was a big um, a big to do over. Um, uh, UN flights uh, in in January of '93, and uh, it led to you know, an escalation, etc. Um, while Bush was still in office, um, but prior to that, I was in Iraq and I met with uh, the oil minister uh, Amir Rashid, and he, he he was laughing at me because he was like, you know, <laughs> you're so cocky, Ritter. You're so cocky because you think you're some UN inspector. You can come in here with the weight of the Security Council behind you, push Iraq around. But those days are over. We are already in negotiations with the Clinton White, with the you know the Clinton transition team, and when Clinton comes in, sanctions are going to be lifted. We're going to start selling oil, and you guys are gone. So enjoy it while you got it.
but you're gone. Um, and this is real. This wasn't fake. We we, we now have some uh, some books coming out that are telling that are confirming what I'm saying from the American side that these negotiations actually took place, and Clinton was actually moving towards the lifting of sanctions. Um, what happened? What happened was that George Herbert Walker Bush uh, made a trip to Kuwait, and uh, suddenly there was this uh, assassination attempt, uh, alleged assassination attempt. Uh, guys coming in from Basra with explosives, they were caught, uh, captured, tortured, da 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 da. And Clinton was compelled to launch cruise missiles against the Iraqi intelligence service, I think in June um, of uh, 1993. Um, and in doing so, he closed down any hopes of ever reaching an accord with, uh, with Iraq because you can't do business with the government that's trying to kill a former president. So they shut it down. The Clinton White House was not in control of this narrative. This was a narrative that was cooked up by former members of the Bush administration working together with the Kuwaiti government, who was very concerned that the Clinton administration might be uh, moving forward to, uh, to, to lift sanctions against Iraq and therefore leave Kuwait in the lurch. And so you had these outside powers create a scenario that compelled a president to act in a manner which went counter to the policy he was seeking to pursue. And so the reason why I bring that up is you, I don't think there's a, 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 a sleeper agent inside the Biden White House that's conspiring against Biden. I don't, I don't think that exists. I am concerned that there are elements outside of the Biden White House who still are connected with various national security teams and are very closely aligned with uh, Ukrainian intelligence, um, who are capable of manufacturing a narrative that ends up driving U.S. policy in a direction that Biden doesn't want it to go. That's what I'm concerned of, because the and United then, States has shown itself very vulnerable to this kind of action. And just so you know that I'm not making this up, you know, we actually captured Iraq <laughs> and uh, captured the Iraqi intelligence service, and we captured all of their archives, and we captured all of the guys that we accused of being involved in the assassination. And it turned out that the, the Iraqis said, we never did it, and their documents prove it. And the entire and nobody's talking about it here in the United States. Nobody's talking because wow. nobody wants to admit that we just made stuff up, made it up out of whole cloth together, and we fell for a trap by the Kuwaitis uh, to attack another nation under false pretense. You don't think Newland and her clique want to go further than Biden and the military do? Oh, she does. There's no doubt in my mind that Newland wants to go further. I just don't think she has that much power. I think Newland's, re, you know, she's she's at the the pinnacle of where she's at, um, and and you know the person that has the most power, I believe, of all the the Russia whispers right now is William Burns. And that's why we're not hearing anything about it. I think William Burns is working overtime, um, behind the scenes, uh, working a back channel, trying to come up with some sort of um, off ramp. Uh, to avoid unnecessary conflict. Look, this is the last place Joe Biden wants. Joe Biden doesn't want to be in Brussels. Joe Biden wants to be in Tokyo. Joe Biden wants to be in Seoul. Joe Biden wants to be in Manila. Joe Biden wants to be in Beijing. Joe Biden wants to be in the Pacific because that's where the future of America lies. That's the economic future. At least that's what it used to be before we allowed Russia to disrupt the petrodollar. Um, you know, now the future is in Moscow. The whole world's gravitating to Moscow right now. The Moscow-Beijing axis is becoming, you know, a, a very real thing. And it's going to be a, 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 an equal axis because 
Russia is the world's number two supplier of energy. And if the ruble becomes a currency of choice in the trade of uh, energy, uh, Russia becomes a, a, I'm not going to say an economic superpower, but you know everybody keeps saying, no, oh, they got a GDP of less than uh, Italy. Well, they're going to have a GDP that's greater than the EU um, if, this, if this trend continues. So you know, this is the last place Biden wants to be. This is the, nobody in his administration wanted to be here. Maybe Newland did. Maybe Newland wanted to be, but nobody else. And yet here they are trapped in Europe, trapped in a quagmire of their own making because they were too stupid to understand that Russia was serious. I mean, this is really what happens when you allow a bunch of academics who focused on the fantasy of Putin to run policy and ignore the reality of Russia. Aaron, did you want to jump in? The fact that Biden, though, was so involved in Ukraine in the coup in 2014, he essentially was the U.S. viceroy yeah. going to Ukraine not a number of times. He was so important that his son, Hunter, got that job with Burisma. Do you think that possibly makes him compromised in his uh, ability to make sound decisions when it comes to the Ukraine crisis? 100%. 100%. I, I think Joe Biden is you know, probably the most compromised president we've had in the White House since JFK. Um, you know, more compromise than Donald Trump. Uh, this, you know, I, I, I'm not going to get into a discussion about Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, you know, that, that story is going to take on a life of its own and go the direction that it goes. And I'm not here to propel it or hinder it or whatever. But I am going to say that if the New York Times, which has been historically a staunch defender of, um, of Biden, a promoter of Biden, comes out and says that the laptop's real and that we have to pay attention to the emails, um, then we need to pay attention to the emails. And the emails show some very disturbing things about the relationship between the Bidens, Burisma, and Ukraine um, that are disqualifying in terms of you know, the ability of somebody to ably serve as the president of the United States. Um, I, I think this is real. I think Biden is um, absolutely compromised by Ukraine, which, in my opinion, is why the last place he'd want to be involved in is Ukraine. I mean, if you've got a secret hidden in a closet in Billings, Montana, uh, the last place you'd want around is Billings, Montana. You want to take the FBI down to Pensacola, Florida, and take them, you know, snorkeling off the Key West, but you don't want them in Montana. Biden doesn't want any attention spent on Ukraine, yet all the attention is spent on Ukraine. I think it's the last place he wants to be. Let me quickly ask everybody who's watching this, if you're enjoying the stream, please give us a like. It helps us out, helps us break the algorithmic suppression. And also subscribe to the Gray Zone. Hit the subscribe button as well. And it's great to see such a big turnout today, everybody tuning in. They're waiting to see if I get a heart attack. My face is turning red. I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> well, uh, they, say heart <laughs> they say heart attacks are, are more common these days for some reason. I think it has something to do with climate change. I don't know. Something. Or just the fact that I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, well, well, I think we're, you're going you're gonna to be around for a while. You seem uh, robust and very healthy. Uh, someone who isn't going to be around for a while is uh, someone who said that it was worth it to kill half a million Iraqi children. As we were speaking, uh, Madeline Albright died. That's what I'm being told by everyone in the chats. 
And, uh, you know, I just wanted to play a video of memory of Madeleine Albright. And since Scott, you, you know, were around the Clinton administration, I, I mean, I can't let this conversation go without getting your thoughts on this uh, longtime American diplomat who was so consequential in so many um, U.S. interventions. Uh, let's just watch this interaction between Madeleine Albright. I think a lot of people will forget about it. And I have a little bit of biographical information on her here. Um, this is her at a um, book event in Prague. Those are Serbians. Wait for it, wait for it. Here it comes. Disgusting Serbs, she said. Disgusting Serbs. So that's the late Madeleine Albright. And as I say in this tweet, um, she was the born Yana Korbelova. She was the daughter of Joseph Korbel, who was a uh, anti-communist former Czech diplomat who despised Tito. Uh, he was actually brought to the United States to, I believe, the University of Denver through a CIA program. And her mentor was, uh, well, and the family owned land in Galicia, which was taken by Tito. So sort of a lifelong anti-communist jihad uh, was passed down to her as she was mentored by Zbigniew Brzezinski, I believe, at Georgetown University. Uh, it was his family who owned land in Galicia, I'm sorry. Um, he was a son of a diplomat who fought with Poland's national army, the national army, I believe, of Joseph Pilsudski, um, who's actually sort of an inspiration to the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. And they fought against the USSR. And so you see this kind of old world hostility pouring out in this exchange with Serbs who had come to protest her at a book event. Um, and of this book was, you know, about the fascism today and basically every country that albright doesn't like specifically russia is fascist and we have to commit regime change to end fascism it's a very crude uh, portrayal or perspective on the world that i think informs a lot of the people scott that you uh, mentioned who are not russia experts but are sort of just ideologues conduct controlling biden's policy but what are your thoughts on albright <laughs> well Madeline and I uh, have a long history together. Um, if you want a little war story, I can give you a little war story. Uh, in 1998, um, I had been thrown out of Iraq, uh, called a CIA stooge and the world's worst person and all that. All of it's true except the CIA part. But um, I went to the White House because the, the, the question was, how do we respond to this? So I went to the White House, the Situation Room, and I briefed them on uh, potential response options. And I said, you know, we can't let the Iraqis get away with this. Um, they don't get to pick who the chief inspector is. Um, my boss, Richard Butler, does. 
uh, and you know, if Richard Butler chooses me to go in, you guys need to back me up. And they said, no, no, you got to go in uh, because you were singled out. Uh, and we also have to, at that time, while we're doing this, Kofi Annan had gone to uh, Iraq and uh, come up with a deal uh, to allow inspectors into sensitive sites, into presidential sites. So it was decided that I was going to test the sensitive site um, modalities. <clears throat> and I, I said, we can go in heavy, we can go in light, we can go in the middle. Uh, and I gave a list of targets. Uh, the U.S. at the last second threw in the Ministry of Defense. And I said, whoa, 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 we don't have a legitimate arms control reason at this time to go to the Ministry of Defense uh, headquarters. Uh, not only that, but Tarek Aziz has said that if you go there, you'll be, uh, you know, it's a red line and we'll go to war. We're not going to let you in. They said, that's why we want it. I said, well, you don't get to make that call. We get to make that call. And I went back to uh, New York to read, uh, to brief Richard Butler. While I was in the White House, Richard Butler was over at the State Department meeting with Madeleine Albright. So we get back to New York City and we get summoned to the U.S. Embassy, to U.S. Mission. Um, Bill Richardson is the ambassador. And we're up in Bill Richardson's office. Um, it's me, Butler, Charles Dulfour, uh, Richardson, and a couple other, um, uh, uh, you know, the deputy ambassador and some other uh, other people. And Butler gets up on a whiteboard and he starts drawing. And he says, um, all right, Ritter, you got to go in on this day. Um, and you have to have a confrontation here, which will be the Ministry of Defense, so that we can start bombing on this day. I said, we start bombing. What do you mean, we? We're the UN. He said, oh, no, the US. And I said, well, I said, don't you know that if you send me in as a weapons inspector, I'm, I, I work for you, but we work for the Security Council, and we're mandated by a resolution, and nothing in the resolution says we get to start wars. He says, no, the, you just do your job. We're going to take care of it. But apparently my hesitation got back to Albright. So I deployed to uh, Bahrain to start training for this, this mission, which is a tough mission. We're talking about potentially setting up a military conflict that could cause the Iraqis to take us hostage. We always had to worry about that. So, you know, this a lot of little, you know, feathers in the stomach kind of stuff. And I'm training the team, trying to get them hard for this mission. We're going to do it. All of a sudden, boom, phone. Ritter, you're not, you're not chief inspector. Albright nixed it. You're done. I said, well, who's going to lead this mission? Well, well, we'll find someone else. Well, I went and told my team. And to their credit, they all came together without any prompting from me and wrote a letter back to Butler saying, the only person who can lead this team is Scott Ritter. We all resign. We're not going to do it. We quit. This inspection's done. Um, and Butler went, well, you can't do that. So he makes phone calls. Long story short, it became a race. Um, who could get to uh, Bill Clinton? Because it was man of the year in New York City. Bill Clinton's there. And basically, they have to get over Albright's head, get to Bill Clinton, and get him to support me being chief inspector. So Albright's trying to get to Clinton. Bill Richardson's trying to get to Clinton. CIA's trying to hunt Clinton down. And they finally get him. And Bill Richardson sneaks in front. Takes Bill uh, takes a uh, Butler and says, Butler picks Ritter and Clinton says, well, you got to pick your best man. Uh, Scott Ritter's the guy. He's got my support. So he leaves. Madeline Albright comes and says, it can't be Ritter. And good. Clinton went, well, I already said it's going to be Ritter. So I did it. Long story short, inspection. I, I stopped. Madeline Albright's in Paris with the French eating dinner. And she turns to her French colleague and goes, guess what's going to happen real soon? Cruise missiles are flying. We're taking Baghdad out, man. It's beautiful beautiful. He said, how do you know? Because we got the fix in. Well, the fix was me. I went in and negotiated access to the Ministry of Defense. I sat down with Tarek Aziz and Amr Rashid and the others, and I said, you guys know that this is a trap, that if you don't let me in, your world disappears. I said, so why don't we find out how to let me in so I could do my job 
so we don't have to have a war. And I got in, we inspected it with conditions that were okay with me, and the war stopped. Albright hated me at that point, hated me. In August, I was back, and Albright stopped the inspection, the big inspection that we had, we had done. Albright stopped it on her orders, called Richard Butler after he ordered me to stay behind to do it, called him. I got pulled out. Sandy Berger, National Security Advisor, uh, got the president to pull me out. So I'm back, and uh, I resigned. This was the final straw. I said, I, I, I can't let the U.S. do this. So I'm resigning. I'm getting ready to testify before um, the Senate. And um, Albright was supposed to testify with me, but she refused to. She didn't want because she knows I know I have all the receipts. I know everything, you know, nothing. She didn't do it. Neither did William Cohen. But Albright is running around talking about how um, I'm making this stuff up, how uh, this wasn't U.S. policy. And, you know, the bottom line is I went up and I humiliated Albright. I, I, I showed how she was a liar. Um, that she was doing this. And she had to admit it. She had to write an op-ed where she pretty much said, yes, we did control the inspections, but only because we wanted to control the tempo and the timing as a politically sensitive. I said, yeah, but you don't get to do that, even if you're Secretary of State. And this is when Joe Biden famously said uh, that, you know, um, that's why they get the big bucks. That's why they get the limousines. Scotty Boy wants in, but people that the higher pay grade get to make the decision. But the bottom line is, uh, Madeleine Albright hates me, with, or hated me with the passion. Uh, she and I had no use for one another. Um, you know, there it is. I had an interaction with a famous dead woman. And you did a great Clinton Slick Willie impersonation. <laughs> and uh, I interviewed back when, back during the Democratic primaries, I interviewed Scott about this, and we'll link to it, where we play the clips of his exchange with Joe Biden, where Joe Biden's questioning him, calling him Scotty Boy. And, um, <laughs> and listen, Scott, since we're on this topic, this is a bit tangential, but didn't the Bush administration, after you left, essentially continue Albright's policy? And they, they used the U.N. inspection team to spy on the Iraqis and the Iraqis found that out? You know, I had exposed that fact and um, and 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 I did it deliberately because my feeling was that if inspectors were going to go back in, they had to go back in clean. And the only way they were going to go back clean is for the dirt to be put on the table for everybody to uh, to understand that. And just so you know, in 2002, when I went to Iraq to, test, to, to uh, give a speech at the Iraqi Parliament and then meet with all, whoops, meet with all the uh, the uh, the Iraqi leadership, I told them. Um, I mean, they knew who I was. They knew everything about what I was doing. But I said, you have to let the history go, and let the inspectors back in without any preconditions, or else. And I told this to Taha Yassin Ramadin, who was the vice president, who was carrying a well-handled uh, oiled pistol at the time. I said, um, otherwise, I'm looking at a dead man. And this guy looked at me, and he stared at me. And I thought maybe he was looking at a dead man because he was going to kill me because it was in his eyes. That's what he does for a living. But he said, no, I get it. I'll talk to the big man, and we'll see what's going on. So um, you know, the, the bottom line is I never lied to the Iraqis about who I was, what I was, and, and what happened. I was honest with them, straightforward. And even knowing all that, they let the inspectors back in. But the U.S. can't let a good thing happen. Um, the, the new inspection team was run by, it became an organization called UNMOVIC. Um, the, 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 the UNMOVIC was run by um, Hans Blix, and then they had a Greek guy named Dimitri Perikos that ran the, uh, the, the inspections. And they thought they were being slick. They thought they were going to create uh, an inspection team that uh, was impervious to uh, international control, and they weren't. Uh, the U.S. controlled everything. 
uh, the Brits controlled everything. There's there's this empire of intelligence services out there that um, get to pick the manpower that goes into positions like this. Um, I think one of the few exceptions was me, who snuck in under the radar because I had an army colonel who knew me from Russia and knew what I did during the war against Iraq and brought me in as a UN employee as opposed to uh, provided personnel. And then the you know Rolfa case agreed to it, and so I became sort of a uh, you know, a fact that the U.S. had to deal with, as opposed to the U.S. doing what it normally does, is to create their own facts and put their own people in there. Um, but no, Unmovic was uh, was was tightly controlled by the U.S. and the British, um, and they had a um, one of the things that Unmovic inherited from uh, Unscom was the system of um, cameras that monitored all the facilities. These cameras were installed by the CIA. Um, for the purpose not of just sending images back, but to intercept communications and then bring it back to the UN. And then in their little secret facility, they'd compress the data and shoot the data up and the U-2 aircraft would suck it up and all this good stuff. Um, that was still going during Umovic. And um, if you take a look at the targeting of, uh, of the United States, both in Operation Desert Fox in 1998, and then in um, during um, Operation Iraqi Liberation, Iraqi Freedom, I think they ended up calling it because OIL probably isn't the right acronym you want for a military operation. Um, but they used this data to target uh, Iraq. I mean, you know, it, this, the CIA ruins everything, literally ruins everything. They, you know, I'm not against intelligence. I, I'm an intelligence officer. And I, I, you know, you need intelligence to to do things. And sometimes the way you gather data is not the way it's done or, or should be done in business. Um, and this is all okay as long as it's done for an honorable cause, really. But the C, there's nothing honorable about what the CIA does. I, I, another war story. I, I was running an operation in Romania with the Brits where we were going to have an Iraqi delegation come in and... Um, the, the Brits were working the Romanians. They they broke into this guy's room. They put up microphones. We recruited a, a, a Romanian, a corrupt Romanian a businessman who was working for us. He wired up the meeting room. Uh, we broke in. We got them drunk. We got their briefcase. We photographed all the documents. We had the goods on these guys. And we were getting ready to run one a great sting operation where they were going to come in and buy missile parts from Romania. And then we were going to beacon it, put a tag on it and let it go into Iraq so my inspection team could come in with the tracking device and track it down and find the site where they hide this stuff. That's good use of intelligence. The CIA couldn't handle the fact that they weren't part of the game. So they came in after the fact and um, you know, told the, the, the Romanian intelligence service that I was uh, a known spy of both the Israeli intelligence service and the Russian intelligence service that I couldn't be trusted and that they had to take over this operation. To the Romanians' credit, they told the CIA to pound sand, but they shut the operation down because they couldn't trust me anymore because of what the uh, the CIA the CIA is poison, poison. They Everything said you were a foreign, the CIA said you were a foreign intelligence asset. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's wild. Oh, you're muted, Mary Aaron. I can't hear you. <laughs> and this is while you were working for this was you were doing this operation on behalf of the Marine Corps. No, Who no, was, no, the United Nations. There's the UN. Okay. I only do I when I worked for the UN. I was true blue. Gotcha. I mean, I, I told the Americans right up front, I said, 
when I first started, I went down to Washington, D.C., and I met with them, and I said, here's the deal, guys. I'm a former intelligence officer. I know how the game's played. If you're going to tell me that we have a secret American policy in place, wink, wink, nod, nod, tell me now. So I make the decision up front whether I want to play that game or not. But if you're going to tell me that this is a U.N. operation that operates in strict accordance with the mandate set forth by Security Council Resolution 687, and once I, once I salute to that, that's all I do. I am not the kind of person that stabs people in the back. I'm right up front. And they said, nope, you're U.N. all the way. And I saluted, and the CIA hated me from that moment on because they came in repeatedly trying to say, wink, wink, nod, nod. I said, I don't do the wink, wink, nod, nod. We could have done that if you'd been honest with me. But now you're coming in, and, and, and they did it. Anyways, they, they ran a coup using one of my inspections as a front. Uh, they tried to assassinate Saddam using one of my inspections as a front. Uh, I had British doing secret covert SIGINT operations on the ground in Iraq. The CIA, uh, because they were mad at me for having a successful operation, released this information uh, in a manner that the Iraqis would detect it, thereby compromising the identities of guys on the ground in Iraq, which if they were caught doing what they were doing, could have been shot. Well, the CIA wait, 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 wait. worst organization in the world. <laughs> you're you're saying the CIA leaked information about a Western intelligence operation, a British SIGIN operation to the Iraqis, to the government of Saddam they, 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 they released it in a way that any operational security person would say increased the likelihood of the Iraqis gathered. They didn't give it directly to the Iraqis. But they re they released it using channels that were believed to be monitored by agencies that regularly released information to the Iraqis. Well, Scott, <laughs> since we're speaking of the CIA, I want to pivot back to Ukraine. What do you make of these reports that have come out uh, via Zach Dorfman of Yahoo News of the CIA basically training an insurgency inside Ukraine since 2014, 2015? And there was even a facility in the southern United States used for this purpose. What do you think the point of this program was and what do you think it looked like on the ground? And what do you think the impact that it um, that it's had on the Ukraine war? Well, let's, let's just start off by speaking the obvious. The fact that we're talking about this means it's not really a secret program now, is it? Um, yeah, I mean, that's Isakov's guy at Yahoo, and like they got all the CIA officers to talk about Assange. Right, but why, but why are the CIA officers talking about it? I mean, I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm researching a book right now. I'm finishing up writing it on um, my experience during the Gulf War. And part of my experience was scud hunting with an organization – that is known as Delta Force. Okay, we're talking about 30 years after the fact. And these guys won't talk. They won't talk because that's who they are. Men of honor, men who took an oath. And I'm not asking them to break their oath, but they, even in the in the area that we can talk about, no, I'm very assiduous because I signed a non-disclosure agreement myself. So I, I, I'm very strict about where I can talk and what I can talk about. But even within an area that is legal, for them to talk, they won't talk because that's just the oath they took. So, and I, I know CIA people who have worked uh, doing stuff in Russia, paramilitary stuff, they won't talk. They, you know, there's a difference between talking about it in a beer, in a backyard, 
with somebody you trust isn't going to leak the information or talking about it to somebody who says up front, I'm going to take this and write a book. Um, when you say I'm going to write this or use it, they refuse to talk. They won't talk. They can't talk. So now you're telling me that five former CIA people who are knowledgeable of this event are suddenly talking about what, if it is true, should be one of the most highly classified operations in the CIA. Why do I say this? Because if you're going to take humans, I mean, you know, in the intelligence business, you know, we don't want to give away certain SIGINT stuff because we have a billion dollar satellite overhead. And if they find out that we can capture something, we lost that billion dollars. But that's not the end of the world. That's just a billion dollars. Um, we, you know, we, we, we might have a satellite to take pictures. And if you, you know, do something stupid like leak the photo, a photograph of a Russian uh, shipyard, like someone did to James Magazine, giving away uh, capabilities of the KH-11 satellite, um, we just lost a billion dollar satellite. That's not the end of the world. The end of the world is when you recruit a human agent and then through fault of your own, that person gets killed. That's the end of the world. And so we have a situation where we're talking about going to Ukraine and recruiting uh, Ukrainian um, military and intelligence and paramilitary officers enlisted um, and then bringing them to the United States to a secret offsite facility uh, to train them in um, you know, special skills. We're talking about unconventional warfare, irregular warfare, um, basically to, to function as stay behind guerrillas. And the whole, uh, the whole tactics, techniques, and procedures that are involved in this are in and of themselves sensitive. I mean, there's only so way, so many ways you can skin an apple. <laughs> so if, and if you're trying to create a competent force, you're sort of giving them access to what you do when you run this kind of operation. And then we're sending them back to Ukraine. Now, if you're talking about this, that means that the Russians are listening. And the Russians, even if they haven't infiltrated that program, are now going to be able to reverse engineer it. I mean, it's, just, it's not rocket science. Where do these people fly out of? Where do they fly to? How many sites are in the Southwest? I mean, you know, I could put this together and tell you exactly what was going on and who was involved on my own if I wanted to put the time and effort into it. So you know darn sure that the Russian intelligence service has done this. And there's already indications that they may have actually gone out and killed some of these people, targeted them preemptively. And if they haven't targeted them preemptively, they're targeting them now. They're killing them. They're rounding them up. So if this was true, if all of this happened, we're looking at one of the greatest criminal acts in modern intelligence history. Because somebody, for whatever reason, leaked this information to the press in a manner which allowed the Russians to prepare for this and, um, and take it out. Now you'd say, well, doesn't the CIA know this? Yes, which now comes to my point. I don't think this program existed. I think this program is part of an information warfare program. I think this program was leaked to an idiot like Isakov who would publish it verbatim because that's what he does. He's not a journalist. He doesn't ask the right questions and uh, put out there for the purpose of sending the Russians down a rabbit hole. Well, I would because say, you know, take me to your camp, show me some Southern comfort, show me the Ukrainian Nazis in the backwoods down there in Mississauga, <laughs> Georgia, down in the Georgia woods, and then I'll write the piece, but I'm not just going to go off of a spook telling me what's what. 
or show me some documents. Uh, give me give me a Ukrainian that's going to talk to me with his face blacked out in a heavy accented voice. Um, something that 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 corroborates the the story. But no, it's just you know the, the five former CIA officials in a position to know. What really what you're saying is five traitors to the United States of America. And I know you guys are journalists who appreciate sources. You come to talk to you. You don't view them as traitors. I'm an intelligence guy. I view them as traitors. I view them as people giving away a program where human lives are attached. And the consequences of their loose lips, if this was real, is dead bodies. And um, in a business where uh, sometimes to succeed, you've got to be able to recruit people who are willing to do dangerous things on behalf of, you know, that betray their government, but on behalf of your government that, that assists your government. Uh, the last thing you want to do is create the notion that we, um, are you know just willy nilly with uh, with with the security of those whom we recruit to do our to our bidding. So, you know these five CIA traitors are giving away the same. Or, what I think is more likely, five CIA people have been brought into a room on the seventh floor of Langley and told, "Okay, we're running an information operation. Here's the guy from uh, the Ukraine desk who's doing this. This is what we want you to say." This is a story we want you to put out. You're going to give away this little bit of information. You're going to give away this. We're going to do it in a way so that Isakov can weave it together and think he has a scoop. That's what I think happened here. I don't think this is real. Yeah, it's sort of like um, I, I would go with the latter, but the idea is what to deter Russia, like we... to 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 put to 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 yeah to distract Russia to get Russia to uh, uh, to 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 do things um, to expose Russia. Uh, first of all, because now you've set up a scenario that that if you've con if you've constructed it correctly, leads to specific uh, nodes of information that can be collected on uh, that are predictable, and so now you have your own intelligence traps there waiting for the Russians to come in and start collecting, and then you can identify the Russian um, the Russian uh, you know assets and roll up Russian uh, you know it's a, it's the intelligence game spy versus spy uh, kind of thing. Um, there's a lot of reasons to do this. One is to get the Russians paranoid, uh, to create the perception that there's going to be a resistance movement so that they have to dispatch internal security forces to be prepared for this. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons why this is a good idea from uh, in, an information warfare standpoint. The, the only problem is that the CIA is not allowed to be in the business of um, influencing the American citizens. <laughs> And by leaking this kind of information to an American journalist to get it published in an American outlet, uh, Americans are reading it. And it's That's illegal. Yeah. Still. I mean, it's just what it just really is. The Smith Lund Act. Pardon? I was saying the Smith Lund Act of 1948 is very seldom enforced these days, is it? No, never is. But I'm just saying that uh, what's going on, right? I mean, we're looking at a CIA MI6 run. Uh, information operation. I can't prove it, but I'll, I'll say this. If you recall the um, the statement uh, that was attributed to Zelensky about, um, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And if you take that source up, the, the, the original source isn't Zelensky. The original source is an unnamed U.S. intelligence official. All right. That just speaks volumes about what's going on here. Now, yeah, uh, so they're, they're, they're shaping information. Now, the person that is in a position to manufacture a quip from Zelensky is also in a position to influence the speeches that Zelensky delivers. Do you really think that this Ukrainian comedian 
came up with all the Churchillian Henry V nonsense that he spouted in front of the British Parliament? No, I don't think so. I think MI6 was involved. Do you really think that the man sat down there and and researched uh, Martin Luther King and every other touch point that he came up with his address to Congress? Nope, I think he was advised by Americans. Here's the problem. That's confirmed. That was that was confirmed by Politico. Our colleague Dan Cohen reported on this that Zelensky's speech to draft it, uh, a consultant in D.C. took part in it. Great. So now what? You're drafting a speech for a foreign leader to influence American politicians? On the day that Putin was speaking to 200,000 of his own citizens, Zelensky... Oh, come now. We know that they were forced at gunpoint to go in there and wave flags. (laughs) Zelensky speaks to his natural constituency. I I assume the Atlantic Council was working with him and all these other characters. Well, you know, the CIA, when you do an information operation, to give you an example, again, I don't want to... I'm not giving away the farm here. Um, You saw the movie um, Argo? Yeah. Clever movie. I I thought it was pretty clever. But you, you, you saw when 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 you need technical expertise that isn't existent in the house, you go out of the house. So to come up with, you know, disguises and things of that or cover stories, they had to go to Hollywood and, and, and talk to this Hollywood guy who ended up getting a medal uh, afterwards and all that stuff. So, you know, the, the CIA does have a dedicated uh, a branch that does a uh, political warfare, information warfare, um, in the Directorate of Operations under the Special Activities uh, umbrella. Um, and these are propagandists. These are the guys that buy elections, win elections, whatever. Um, but they oftentimes contract out this um, this this information as a, as a way of creating a buffer between them and the target. So the, the real author might be some uh, CIA guy sitting in, um, in, in Langley, but he's not gonna be the guy calling up because you have to have deniability. So he's going to farm it out to the Atlantic Council, to the CEP, the National Endowment for Democracy, uh, you know, my, my next door neighbor, Beth, uh, whoever, uh, to, you know, to get this information to Zelensky, usually via a Ukrainian cutout that the CIA controls. So even if Zelensky isn't knowing or winning about this, there are people in Zelensky's orbit, I guarantee you, are on the CIA payroll who are the ones helping craft the Zelensky mystique. Okay, I have a related question here, Scott. What is your sense of the level of Russian intelligence infiltration of Ukrainian intelligence? Again, a war story. In 1997, I traveled to Kiev uh, to meet with the Ukrainian government about um, Ukrainian um, arms merchants who were dismantling Soviet-area factories and shipping it to uh, Iraq. and at that time, I was meeting with uh, Kuchma, um, who was the, the president, and his National Security Council. But I also wanted to meet with the SBU, which is the Ukrainian Intelligence Service. And I was told at that time, don't go anywhere near them. They are controlled by the Russians. And this was in 1997, which only made sense because they were all probably former KGB people. And Now, people say, well, man, that was like 15 years ago. Yeah, it was. And could things have changed? Possibly. But we're talking about the world's most corrupt nation on the planet. I'm telling you right now, the Russians can exploit corruption like like nothing you've ever seen. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that the Russians uh, own the Ukrainian intelligence service. Uh, The United States and Great Britain had made concerted effort to clean it out. But the way they cleaned it out isn't to actually do, you know, a house cleaning. 
the way they cleaned it out was to create, and I hope you understand how stupid this is, to create controlled cells within the insert. So now if you're trying to hide something from the Russians. All the Russians have to do is say, what's that new unit created down the hallway that nobody's talking about? Well, we're not allowed to talk about that. Why not? Uh, they they went out, uh, they're handpicked people. And then the Russians look down and go, it's all people we don't control. Uh, so that's something the U.S. or the Brits are doing. So we're now going to track it. Um, and, and I think that's the kind of stuff that's going on. I think the Ukrainian intelligence service was heavily infiltrated. Uh, I think the Russians have people in parliament. They have people in the presidential office. Uh, rumor has it that the uh, negotiator that was killed uh, was working for the Russians. Uh, you know, one the, the guy was on the first negotiating team that went into uh, that went into Belarus. Um, ended up getting popped. Um, you know, shortly afterwards, uh, accused of being a Russian agent. Probably was. Uh, I think the Russians are everywhere. They're good. We have to give them credit where credit's due. All roads lead to Putin. Um, <<laughs> we got we got we got to talk about Zelensky. I think a little bit more. Um, and I'll throw up the. Uh, so the unusual green screen footage uh, while we get your re response. But you, yeah, he did appear in a very unusual way in what was said to be downtown Kiev or Kiev, as every U.S. correspondent likes to say now, you know, they're, yeah. they're, code, they're code switching. Um, where is Zelensky? Is, do you believe he's in Kiev or has he slipped out to Poland? What and what's his... I mean, he seems to be in, in the role of his life. He really is loving this role. Uh, there's definitely some Netflix special in it for him. He's, he's, he's famous. Uh, I guess my just uh, two questions. Where is he? And number two, do you think that he still can govern Ukraine, particularly a rump state west of the Dnipro River? Uh, couldn't he be subjected to some kind of internal coup by ultra-nationalist elements who've been calling for a civil war all along and have always opposed him? Well, let's, let's, let's start with looking at it from this angle. Um, why isn't he dead? Uh, here's a charismatic uh, Churchillian figure uh, leading his troops to glory. He's the most legitimate command and control target I've ever seen. Um, right. And uh, if I were the Russians, um, I would want him dead unless your political solution requires legitimacy at the top of Ukraine. See, if, if Zelensky is removed, uh, we already know that NATO has created the, the foundation for a government in exile. So if you eliminate Zelensky, they will set up a government in exile, and the Russians will never be able to impose their will on this government because it's a NATO tool operating outside of yeah. The Russians need Zelensky to stay in Ukraine, to stay in Kiev, um, so that they can get him to capitulate. Because you, whatever, if, if, a, if a deal is negotiated to bring this conflict to an end, it's going to have to include Ukrainian recognition of Crimea. Um, it's going to have to include Ukrainian recognition of the independence of Donbass and Lugansk, and it's going to have to include uh, the Ukrainians agreeing to whatever mechanisms put in place that um, creates perpetual neutrality, um, non-NATO membership. The only person right now that can do this and make that agreement survive the, 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 the legality test 
is Zelensky because he has been. Again, the Russians are smarter than anybody else at this game. By letting the CIA build this reputation, craft this personality, craft this image, they've made him unimpeachable in the mind of the West. So Zelensky comes out and says, I recognize Crimea. Who in the West is going to say, no, you don't? They can't. It's the recognition. Now, if if the Russians kill Zelensky or he's removed and a puppet's put in place, nobody will respect the decision of the puppet. The Russians need Zelensky, and they need Zelensky in Ukraine. So I think the Russians are actively um, manipulating the... Um, the game that's being played around Zelensky to keep him uh, in Ukraine, not in Lvov. Lvov doesn't do any good. Lvov is not Ukraine uh, in Kiev. Uh, Lvov is, is is he's he's already halfway to NATO. He needs to be in Kiev now. Kiev's dangerous place. And it's dangerous for a couple things. It's dangerous because um, even though people like me are probably telling uh, Zelensky the same thing I'm saying uh, because it's pretty damn obvious in my book. Um, he has to be nervous that he is indeed target number one. People have told him, you're the number one target. The Russians want to kill you. So they got to move him around. And they got to hide him. They got to do all this stuff, hence the green screen to disguise where he truly is, et cetera. Um, but he's also has to be insulated from the ultra right wing nationalists who've already threatened to string him up by the neck until dead. I mean, they've already said, we're going to hang you on the street if you ever do anything we don't want. And trust me, the day Zelensky decides that he's going to enter into this peace agreement with Russia, because that day will come, um, they're going to try and kill him. And so the Russians have to keep him alive. So I think some of the people around Zelensky are deep cover Russian security operatives whose sole job is to keep this guy alive. Yeah, I, I, Scott, sorry, just quickly, uh, do you believe this that Denis Kariv, the uh, negotiator on Zelensky's team, was killed by the SBU uh, for that reason? He was killed by somebody for that reason. Yeah, I, I, I mean, that's the story. I, I don't have any corroborating evidence. I just look at that story and said, that makes sense. That makes sense that he was, you know, uh, they found out that he was receiving um, or passing on. Uh, either receiving information from the Russians or passing on information to the Russians about negotiating um, strategies. And uh, and they they gave him the uh, 75 cent solution. Cost him a bullet in the back of the head. Yeah, for those who uh, just who don't know, a member of the Ukrainian negotiation team was killed in the streets of Kiev, I think, during the first week of negotiations. His name is Denis Kiriv. Uh, yeah. So I've, I've been wondering about that one. It uh, just disappeared from the media. It was yep, reported yep. on, and then we never heard anything else again. And the, I think the Ukrainian security services said that he resisted arrest, and that's why they killed him. Well, uh, that but then another branch yeah. held that him makes in a it okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it sounds like an assassination to me. Yeah. Look, the Russians have done, I'll give you an example from history um, of why this scenario is plausible. Uh, Edward Shevardnadze, the former Georgian uh, president, was in Sukhumi in um, September, late September of 1993, when uh, the city was about to fall to Abkhazian rebels supported by Russian troops. And Shevardnadze gave a speech about, I'm going to stay here and fight till the death. Shevardnadze was a former Soviet foreign minister. And Boris Yeltsin, 
um, who was going through a difficult time at that time. Remember, he was getting ready to have tanks firing into the Russian parliament, um, called in the Alpha team, Alpha group, which are the Russian equivalent of Delta Force, and said, we can't have former, former foreign minister of the Soviet Union um, drag through the streets of Sukhumi. Get him out. And the Russians, in the middle of this horrible fighting that was taking place, got a snatch team in there and took Shevardnadze out. Um, and one of the reasons why they would get a snatch team in so easily is that the snatch team was already there. Uh, they just simply activated uh, the, the resource. And I, I believe that it, when the time comes, there's a Russian snatch team that will get Zelensky out to NATO. They don't want him in Russia. They don't want to take him prisoner. They, they want him out. They want him gone, alive. Um, but before that happens, having committed to a, uh, an agreement that uh, gives Russia everything it needs. Wow. Uh, well, ultimately, they, uh, Shevard Nazi was taken out in a CIA-backed color revolution, uh, despite his friendly relations with the first Bush. The CIA breaks everything it touches. <laughs> They're not good agency. They have some good people. I have friends there. I had friends there. Um, but whatever they used to be able to do that was good, they don't. I, I, I just have no use for this agency anymore because it doesn't stand for anything American. They stand yeah. for everything yeah. that's anti-American. Well, they lowered Why? the price of cocaine here on the streets of D.C., so I don't know. Hunter Biden might have some. <laughs> I'd have to make a trip to D.C. <laughs> Just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a story. Hunter Biden boasted of uh, of doing coke with uh, our former mayor, Marion Barry, in a bathroom here in D.C., so... We called them the cocaine import agency when I was growing up here in D.C. That's what everyone called the CIA. But anyway, I wanted to get back to Ukraine, um, all jokes aside. Yeah. Um, and uh, in reference to something you tweeted, which was that, and this was a very provocative tweet, um, Russia will not be the one accused of the bulk of crimes yeah. in Ukraine. It will actually be the Ukrainian ultranationalist, the Azov Battalion. Let me just play a, a quick clip of a video that I think might uh, support that contention somewhat if people find it um, extreme. And this is, well, we should get the sound on here. Terminator. This is the theme uh, of the Terminator 2, one of my favorite themes, by the way. Um, the Azov Battalion, and then you see as we pan left, they're holding civilians hostage in, I believe, Mariupol while basically tormenting them with this. Let's watch it again, just just to you know the full effect of the terror. And this is, I mean, this is so chilling to watch. So yeah, I mean, there are so many videos going around now of of average Ukrainians. Well, I, I don't exactly know who they are. They're being um, strung up to poles with um, like saran wrap, saran like packing yeah. wrap, and they're being tortured. They're having their pants lowered and having their genitals and and butts like hit with rods by the street patrols of azov and other vigilantes um so you know the, the reality of of despotic state rife with extremism is really coming to the surface now of course western media isn't reporting it but nobody cares what they say anymore um you know what 
how much power do they have? And, and, you know, is the U S going to be able to put this monster back in the box after we saw what it did in Syria, where it really was up to Russia. And I guess the U S kind of outsourced it to the, the Kurds, the so-called democratic forces to dispose of ISIS. But what, what's going to happen here with these, these characters? I know the battle's still raging for Mariupol where, which is being quote unquote defended by Azov. What's going to happen is they're all going to die. I mean, or, or be captured and put on trial. Um, denazification means denazification. And uh, the Russians aren't playing games here. This is real. This is real as it gets. And, um, you know, this, this, this is something that Russia is dead serious about. Um, if you listen to their statements, uh, it, you know, it, it's not, you know, it's the Ukrainian army, you're welcome to drop your weapons, come to us, be surrendered and all that kind of stuff. Um, the, the Nazis are going to be liquidated. And um, my, my understanding of the Russian term liquidated uh, generally means something similar to what it sounds like. Um, no, this, this is brutal. This is real. This, is, this isn't uh, games. This isn't the West, the West uh, promising something and failing to deliver. Uh, this is a stated military objective of the Russian campaign. A Russian campaign, by the way, which has cost the Russian army thousands of lives. Thousands of lives. I'm not saying 10,000. I'm not giving the big number, but it's over a thousand. Um, and, you know, you don't pay that blood price just to walk away from a, from a problem of this nature. Uh, Russia is committed. They're going to finish this. This war will not end until Ukraine has been denazified. And that means not only killing all these people, but eliminating the political parties and the political processes that empowered them. Uh, and getting um, changes in the in, in Ukrainian legislation and Ukrainian constitution that forever ban this this hateful ideology from rearing its head. People say, "Well, come on, man! Only two percent of the uh, of, of the electorate. Um, how how much power can they have? Enough power to intimidate Parliament into voting uh, for a step on Bandera Day? Um, you know, this isn't about winning elections. This is about bringing political terror into the into the mix." Uh, at a time and place that achieves the objectives you want. When you tell the president of Ukraine, and I'm not talking about one president, I'm talking about two, Poroshenko, then Zelensky, that if they do anything that goes against what the Azov group, what the ultra-right-wing nationalists want, that you will be killed. You'll be hung, hanging from the streets in Kiev. Um, these guys are a real problem. They've infiltrated every aspect of the military, uh, they're they're in the they're, you know they're in the general staff they're in the presidential staff they're in the secret police they're in the police they run everything they may not be the number one guy but they are sometimes the number two guy three guy four guy but even if they're number four guy they're the number one guy because they have the ability to go to the number one guy and say your family will be dead tonight unless you do what I want you to do I mean it's political terror and that's what these guys do. Yeah, you actually saw Vadim Troyan of, of Right Sector, a neo-Nazi brigade, uh, be appointed uh, police, basically an advisor to the police commissioner of Kiev. Uh, the interior minister who left last year, um, Arsen Avakov, had incorporated the National Guard, uh, sorry, the National Corps, the civilian wing or the political wing of Azov, 
into um, the you know municipality of Kiev, and they simultaneously used the neo-Nazi C14, uh, just open neo-Nazis, uh, to commit pogroms against Roma people who were living by the train station, um, sort of a, a you know a cleanup campaign in the words of the in the view of the Kiev city council. So these are state-backed forces. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it, 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 what you foresee in a denazification campaign is trials and a kind of like Nuremberg commission overseen by Russia. I, I see that happening. The Russians have promised that. They've talked about uh, military courts, marshals. So the, the, this will be done under military auspices um, and they will, they will try these people. And, the beauty of a military court martial is um, the death penalty is a reality. Uh, look, I, I don't mean to be too, you know, I, I'm as humane as the next person. I, I don't want people to suffer, but I'm sorry. Um, you know, there, there, there's a couple ideologies that um, I don't feel sorry for when bad things happen to them. And one is uh, Islamic fundamentalists like uh, ISIS, uh, Al Qaeda, and the other one is uh, Nazis, such as uh, what we're seeing here. Uh, hate-filled ideologies that that stand for nothing good, um, and 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 with you know the thing about Nazi, I mean ISIS, you know, and, and Al Qaeda, you know, we can talk about 9/11, but most of their harm after 9/11 was done to fellow Muslims, and, and right. you know, right. and, and so it, you know, it's hard for as an American for me to say to to to, to have, I mean, not hard. I have empathy, but. You know, it's a stretch. I have to actually try because I worked in the Middle East, lived in the Middle East. I can I can empathize with the Middle East. But for the average American, it's difficult to transport yourself into Baghdad or Damascus or the Idlib countryside. Um, but, you know, we fought World War Two. <laughs> we, we, we fought the Nazis. My uncle fought the Nazis. And. Americans died fighting the Nazis. And here they are in Central Europe, parading around, worse, parading around with the backing of the United States, the same military that defeated the Nazis in Germany in World War II is now training the Nazis in Ukraine to go and kill Russians whose fathers were our allies in the fight against them. The perversion of what's happening here is mind-boggling. And the fact that People don't see it. The fact that you can get a Jewish rabbi in Kiev to get on TV and and condemn the Russians for attacking a TV station uh, and, and calling that the desecration of the Bobby Yar site, uh, while it, not recognizing that the people the Russians are fighting are the descendants of the trigger pullers who actually killed the 30,000 Jews at Bobby Yar. And I'm that not- the road to Bobby Yar, Scott, was named for Stepan Bandera the commander of those pogroms yeah. under their watch. I, I, I don't get it. I just don't and get it. And the site I mean, itself was not was not actually damaged, contrary it to wasn't. No, that was a lie too. Yeah. I mean everything they say is a lie. But the 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 fact that I mean this should get Americans outraged. This should because this isn't you know ISIS cutting off heads in Raqqa. You know, I mean you can watch that video and go, oh my God, that's terrible. This is the dis- the desecration of the memory of our forefathers who went overseas to fight this hateful ideology and gave their lives in that cause. This is the kind of thing that Americans should really get riled up about. 
And the fact that we've allowed ourselves to be captured by these idiots who call themselves Russian experts, but are nothing more than, you know, Putin psychologists. Um, and we can't see it. Michael McFall. I, I, if there was any justice in the world, Michael, I hope you're listening because you blocked me on Twitter, um, which I don't really care. But me too. You shall be judged one day harshly as a Nazi facilitator. And you should be judged harshly as a Nazi facilitator. You made this happen. You know, so shame on you, Michael. And just to underscore what Scott was saying about how these neo-Nazi forces being a threat to Zelensky, I want to quote one of them, uh, the co-founder of Right Sector, Dmitry Yarosh. After Zelensky gave his inaugural address, which, and again, recall everybody, he ran on a mandate of making peace with the Russian-backed rebels in the East. Overwhelming mandate, more than 70% of the electorate voted for him. And Zelensky, in his, in his inaugural address, vowed to pay a political price. He said that, I am prepared to give up my own position as long as peace arrives. And so Dmitry Yarosh, co-founder of Right Sector, this is how he responded. No, he would lose his life. He will hang on some tree if he betrays Ukraine and those people who died in the revolution and the war. Yeah. And, you know, in America, we talk about January 6th as an insurrection. Look, January 6th pissed me off. I, I, I'm just being right up front. Um, I'm a huge believer and defender of the Constitution. And uh, while I, there's no love lost between me and Joe Biden. I hope you know that because of my history with him. But, you know, damn it, the man won the election. Um, no American election is perfect. You can sit there and say what you want. But at the end of the day, when the Electoral College speaks, America needs to listen. And we have a history of peaceful transition of power that's that that it's derived from that. So when Congress is meeting to carry out the constitutional task of certifying the electoral college vote, that is sacrosanct. That is, you don't touch that. You let this happen uh, because that's what makes our country the greatest country in the world. So the idiots that turned a uh, demonstration into a riot decided for their kicks and jollies that they're going to take it to Congress. Shame on you. That's sedition. It's not an insurrection. An insurrection is when you go in and you kill all of Congress and you take over. That's what an insurrection. An insurrection is when you have the power, like Yarosh, tell the president, if you don't do what I want you to do, you're going to hang by the neck until dead. And the president believes him. That's an insurrection. There's a Nazi insurrection at play right now as we speak in Ukraine. They control everything, everything. Anybody who thinks otherwise is a damn fool. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, there are these rallies that uh, were leading up to, um, you know, during any effort at peace or implementing the Minsk agreement, there were rallies yeah. called Red Line for Zelensky. And you'd see the top, uh, quote unquote, nationalist leaders who are basically Nazi leaders. Andrei Perubi, who is the speaker of the Ukrainian Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, would be heading these rallies. And, you know, they're basically saying Red Line for Zelensky. They're like, we will target you militarily, internally. Yeah if you make peace and they would just do it again and again, openly in the middle of Kiev, tens of thousands of people, they would take over city councils, the national core. Um, what I'm, what, I, what, what troubles me is that these kind of, um, that there are, that, that, you know, when you, when you say people 
are being misled or America is defying its grand tradition by supporting these Nazis, that there is a parallel tradition in the West of being aligned with them. You know, they brought in the Galen group. You want to talk about an intelligence operation that that was uh, directly involved in Western Ukraine facilitating the the OUN or OAN, the Ukrainian National. OUN, correct. Yeah. Yeah. That this is, uh, you know, hey, Reinhard Galen, the he, he oversaw that. the pogroms in Ukraine. He was one of the major figures in the Gestapo, yeah. and he was brought over to start the BND because he had all the files on the communists who they wanted yep. to make sure didn't get power. Let's talk about another figure who is one of the most important Western officials, maybe one of the most powerful women in the Western hemisphere right now. And her name is Christia Freeland. And I want to show a picture of her grandfather. Of course, we're not. Uh, you know, to be blamed for the sins alleged or confirmed of our parents and grandparents, but she's taken on the cause of her grandfather, Michael Chomiak, who is seen top left here at a party with the um, Nazi press chief for occupied Poland, Emil Gassner, is a hardcore Nazi ideologue. And then he brought his Nazi ideology, this is a thread by Canada in the world, over to Canada when he uh, started a newspaper uh, in one, one, uh, just quoting from one article in the paper, with great joy, we welcome the establishment of a, of a hist German order. And they reported on a mass murder of Jews, a pogrom, declaring that they got their comeuppance and celebrated that there was not a single Jew left in Kiev. I mean, this is like an image from the paper that Christian Freeland's grandfather ran. And I guess Russian diplomats helped expose this story. And so Justin Trudeau proceeded to expel them from the country and accuse them of Russian disinformation. But this should be a huge scandal, especially in light of the fact that Christia Freeland showed up at a rally holding a literal OUN uh, or UPA, uh, Ukrainian Partisan Army flag, and chanting Slava Ukraini, which is you know one of the ultranationalist slogans. So she's clearly continuing this tradition yeah. of, of, of Nazism running the the Canadian uh, foreign ministry. I mean, this is one of her books, by the way, Sale of the Century. And it's all about how like Jews took over the took over Russia, Jewish oligarchs after communism. I mean, it's 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 this is real. It's with us. It's it's part of it's part of our political class. You look but at to show the, the, the ignorance, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. When she introduced Zelensky thought it was somehow woke as hell to, to, to slow. Okay. So we got the speaker of the house, number three in the line of succession to the presidency using a Nazi affiliated slogan um, in the people's house. I mean, come on. This is the book I mentioned, by the way, by Christia Freeland, but yeah, she, I mean, uh, uh, Melanie um, Verveer, the Hillary Clinton advisor, advisor to the Hillary Clinton State Department, who is holding uh, meetings at the Ukrainian embassy talking about the 2016 election with uh, Ukrainian officials. She also said Slava Ukraine or Slava Heroim at a rally of Ukrainian nationalists. So, you know, this is just a, a dis really disturbing part of the culture of Washington and increasingly the cult, um, you know, you, these figures are aligned with the liberals in Canada and the democratic party uh, who I think represent a pretty right-wing perspective. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I, I can't, I'm never going to justify the embrace of, of, of Nazis, uh, you know, but. In, <laughs> that's in, good. In, that, that separates you from Michael McFall. 
No, you can't. You can't embrace them. But, you know, the excuse they gave in post-World War II was uh, we needed them to confront the Soviet threat. You know, the evil Stalinist communists, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, you made that argument. What do you need them today for? Because if you're going to tell me that Vladimir Putin is the modern-day incarnation of Joseph Stalin, you're, you're just smoking dope. I mean, this is what bothers me. It's up there in the top five things that bother me, <laughs> is the level of ignorance in this country about Russia. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that Russia smells like roses. It doesn't. I've been there. Um, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that the Russians only want to do good things for the United States. They don't. Uh, they, they care about Russia. But I am going to sit here and tell you that the average Russian today wants to be the friend of the United States. How do I know? Because I'm in constant contact with the average Russians in Russia today. People I met when I was a weapons inspector over there who work in you know, in a missile production factory town, um, people who are involved in the politics, people who are involved in, you know, civilian manufacture, um, journalists. These these are day-to-day -day people, normal people who don't view me as the enemy, who don't view you as the enemy. They, 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 they want to be friends. They don't want to be, you know, slavishly subservient to the United States. They'd like to be treated as equals but they don't want to be superior. They're not demanding that they have a place in the world to dictate. They just want to live life the way we live life. And you know what? Vladimir Putin wants the same thing. He's consistent in his message to the Russian people and to the world. Uh, you know, and he's been around for a long time. So we have a lot of speeches to judge him from. He's one of the most articulate, um, knowledgeable, uh, you know, leaders that the world has ever seen. And yet we've turned this man into a cartoon caricature of, you know, Boris and Natasha, you know, the, 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 this evil man. No, this is ridiculous. But the end result is we, the people of the United States of America, are the most ignorant people in the world about the world we live in. We don't even take the time to ask questions. We allow a jerk like Michael McFall to get up and dictate to us what we think about Russia instead of saying, whoa, Mike, thanks for your opinion, but I'd like to listen to Stephen Cohen while he was alive. I'd like to listen to Jack Matlock, who's still alive, one of the most brilliant minds about uh, the Soviet Union, about Russia today, Jack Matlock, former ambassador. Uh, he was the ambassador when I was over there. The guy knows a lot. Read his books. This guy is great, but they're not listening to him. They're, they're parading out McFall. They're parading out Ann Applebaum. I get to watch Fiona Hill and uh, Julie Yofi is on TV all the time. These are, my wife has always told me I have to be nice, so I have to watch what I say. These are people who have not accurately defined the modern essence of Russia and instead have decided to simplify a very complex problem set in the person of one person, Vladimir Putin, who they can't even accurately depict who he is. No, oh, there she is. Suzanne <laughs> Applebaum, uh, neocon, uh, board member of the National Endowment for Democracy, hardcore regime changer, calling Tucker Carlson a traitor in a podcast with Hillary Clinton. They're they're really into calling everyone traitors. Traitors, days, yeah. Liberal interventionists. Uh, her husband Radislav Sikorsky actually uh, was a journalist. He's a kind of a Polish. Um, 
intervent like neoliberal type guy. He picked he when he was a journalist, he was in Afghanistan and he got so overcome with passion for the anti-Soviet Mujahideen that he picked up a rifle and attacked a, a Soviet barracks with them. And then he was questioned about it later. And he said, well, I only fired three bullets and they just hit the wall because I don't have very good aim. So, you know, that's OK. So that's who. Anyway, this is one of our top experts. Um, Aaron, uh, Scott, I know we're coming. We're on like uh, two hours. You're welcome to stay and we can keep rolling. Uh, we might, you know, even be able to bring in a, another Gaster, you're welcome to. Oh, I've, 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 I've dominated your time. for. Well, Scott, we have some more questions for you if you do have time. I, I, oh, if you if you want me to stay here, I will. I just don't want you guys to think no, that no, I'm listen, sort of like we, hanging on. A lot more. We, there's a lot even that we're not even going to have time for today. But and by the way, everybody, thank you for tuning in. And I want to just remind you, if you are enjoying the stream, please give it a like and please hit the subscribe button as well so you can get all of our videos. And Scott, thank you again for sticking around so long with us. We really, really appreciate hearing your insight. Since you mentioned your experience as a weapons inspector, I want to ask you to draw on that to talk about the, the role of the U.S. dismantling of arms control treaties in this crisis. One of those treaties you helped implement as an inspector helping to basically put in force the INF Treaty, uh, a Cold War pact reached between Reagan and Gorbachev that el eliminated an entire class of, of missiles. And you were on the ground enforcing that treaty and Trump killed it. The U.S. ignored Russian demands to extend it, preserve parts of it, as did NATO. And moving beyond Ukraine a little bit, I'm wondering what role has the dismantling of arms control treaties like the, NF, the INF Treaty under Trump, like the ABM Treaty under Bush, like the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty under Bush as well, I think, Open Skies Treaty under Trump. What role that has played in Russia's thinking in terms of why it felt the need to uh, invade Ukraine, well, well, we'll start with the the predicate of the you know the underlying predicate of the invasion was to create a condition that uh, would allow for the uh, redefining of a European security framework between Russia and the West. Now, why would Russia need a European security framework redefined? Because the existing one is viewed by Russia as representing an existential threat, an existing one that has an expansive NATO. Um, coming right up to its borders, um, a, a NATO that believes that it can operate outside of the framework of the United Nations Charter, you know, Article 51, um, the only allowed use of forces in self-defense or authorized by Chapter 7. Well, NATO says, we're not a state. <laughs> we're not a member of the United Nations. Therefore, we're not bound by Article 51. That's actually the argument they used to justify their, their intervention in Serbia in 1999. Uh, so you have this aggressive, offensive-minded organization that comes in, and there's nothing to hold it back. And what I mean by that is, look what they did in Poland and Romania. They installed uh, two what's called um, uh, Aegis offshore sites, uh, Mark 41 Aegis um, uh, systems, giant phased array radars that fire uh, SM-3 missiles uh, and that have been adapted for a uh, uh, anti-ballistic missile role. The problem with the Mark 41 system is it's a canonized, can, a, a, a canisterized system on a ship that in addition to the SM-3 also has Tomahawk missiles. And a Tomahawk missile put on the ground becomes an intermediate range missile, which is banned by the intermediate range uh, treaty, the INF treaty. Um, 
So the INF Treaty became inconvenient to, uh, to the United States because we wanted to be able to do that. But even when we couldn't, when we weren't thinking about that, we were also talking about modifying the SM-3 missile to become something called the SM-6 Typhoon, which is basically a, a SM-3 that's now modified for a surface-to-surface -surface capability. Again, operating from the same site in Poland and in um, Romania. Russia just doesn't like this because you turn those sites into um, surface-to-surface missile launch sites, you're talking about being able to fire a missile that if it's a, if it's a typhoon can reach St. Petersburg, Moscow, uh, Soviet uh, or Russian uh, leadership sites within five to seven minutes. Why is that important? Let's back up now in time. When nuclear weapons came into being, um, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union uh, got into an arms race. It was basically, you know, the U.S. looked at Russian missiles, said, well, we need to get our missile, and the Minuteman, solid rocket launch, boom. The Russians, well, oh my God, the Minuteman can now take out this, so we have to build our own missiles with multiple warheads that can take out the Minuteman sites. And it just got out of control where we were building missile system after missile system. So the, the minds at B said, okay, why don't we agree on a concept called mutually assured destruction? That is, we both agree that we can kill each other. Therefore, it makes no sense for either one of us to, to attack. Then what we do is we put in place a ballistic missile, uh, anti-ballistic missile treaty. Why? Because if we agree that we can kill each other, why build defenses? The whole purpose of mutually assured destruction is to agree that we can kill each other. And if you build a defense, all that creates is the need to destroy that defense with more weapons. So the ABM treaty is one of the cornerstones of nuclear um, security. Uh, it, it, it allows this situation to exist where neither side will use nuclear weapons because it means the automatic termination of life for everybody involved. And that worked until we got involved with what's called intermediate nuclear forces, these, these medium range missiles. What happened with those is that um, the, the Russians were feeling a little um, out of place uh, they needed a new weapon system to replace the 1950s era, S, uh, the ones that were sent to um, Cuba, by the way, the SS-4, SS-5. So the Russians built something called the SS-20, which is a mobile missile with three warheads um, that basically allowed Russia to take out all of Europe in a heartbeat. And the Euro Europeans went, this is really, really bad. <laughs> and so they asked the United States to come up with a counter. So the U.S. came up with the cruise missile, ground launch cruise missile and the Pershing-2 missile. Pershing-2 uh, is a solid rocket, high-speed missile that if it was fired from a site in West Germany, would be able to take Moscow out in five minutes. And the Russians went, we can't tolerate that. Uh, that's a very dangerous situation. This is unstable. Um, but so both sides were getting ready to deploy this. Something happened in 1983 uh, during a military exercise called uh, Reforger. They had an internal exercise called Able Archer. Able Archer was a command and control um, uh, exercise where we were simulating nuclear launch. Now, the Russians prior to this, and we didn't know this, <laughs> had believed that one of the things the United States would do to launch a secret attack against Russia would be to use um, a reforger exercise to get all the troops over there and then launch the surprise nuclear attack. So the Russians are already looking at this large reforger exercise, not, and they're listening in, and they go, holy crap, they just issued launch instructions. They're going to war again. This is the preemptive strike. So the Russians immediately put the SS-20 missile units on higher alert, got them ready to launch a nuclear 
I mean, we're ready to go to war, nuclear war. When the CIA briefed Ronald Reagan on this a year later, uh, allegedly he went pale. He got physically sick. And he said, my God, they couldn't actually believe that we were going to launch a first strike. And the CIA said, yeah, they believed it. And he said, then we have to make sure this never happens again. The end result of this, the INF Treaty, a treaty which banned this class of missile that was seen by both sides as being inherently destabilizing. I mean, prior to the INF Treaty, you, I grew up in Germany. I went to high school in Germany. I have to tell you, we lived next door to a nuclear weapons depot. It was going to be struck if there was ever a war by a nuclear weapon. And we, there, multiple times a year, my dad went into the bunker because there was a crisis. Now, if he's going in the bunker, that means he's supposed to live through a nuclear attack, weapons attack, which might occur at any moment. So every day I'm going to high school wondering if the world is going to end today, literally. And that happened all the time. That's what Europe lived under, the pre ever-present threat of immediate annihilation from nuclear weapons. We got rid of those weapons. I mean, I, wonderful thing. We got rid of them and we brought stability to Europe because no longer is Europe functioning under this hair-trigger alert system. Um, they don't have to worry about nuclear weapons raining in on, on things. What did Donald Trump do? Well, first thing that happened is that George W. Bush uh, got out of the ABM treaty because he no longer respected Russia's nuclear deterrence. And he said that the concept of mutually assured destruction is stupid. We want to live. We want to create missile defense shield that allows us to survive. We're not going to live in an environment where we say, oh, we're going to die. So we did that. We did that because the Russians were weak, because the Russians had nothing. And we kept lying to the Russians saying, this isn't about you, but it was all about the Russians. Uh, we build that, and then we get out of the INF Treaty, the one that the Russians were saying that, you know, we accuse Russia of cheating. They weren't. Russia said, no, you guys are cheating. This Mark 41 uh, Asia system is uh, capable of launching cruise missiles, and you guys are deploying it on the ground, which makes it a violation of the INF Treaty. Well, the way we solve that is to get out of the INF Treaty. How do we know the Russians were right? Less than a month after we got out of the INF Treaty, we tested a combat missile fired from a Mark 41 system. So we always had the intention of doing this. But in doing this, we've now opened the door to a Russian response. What have the Russians done? They have built an entire entire category, new categories of nuclear weapons that are designed to defeat any ballistic missile defense system the United States has. And they're telling the U.S. that if you put intermediate nuclear forces on the ground in Europe, we will have to put, we'll have to deploy our own uh, miss, missile systems that we're not deploying right now. The bottom line is we're returning to that scenario in the 1980s where every European child wakes up wondering is, if this is the day that I get the 200,000 degree suntan. That's the genius of the American system. That's the moronic reality of the idiots in Washington, D.C. who are running this policy. Putin didn't want this. How do we know? Because he said over and over again, I didn't want this. In 2018, he gave a speech where he announced these weapons. He said, I've been telling you the whole time, don't do this. This is bad. We don't want to do this, but we have to. We have no choice. He said, you didn't listen to me then. Are you listening now? And we are listening now because it's a reality. But what are we doing about it? At a time when we should be trying to re restart the INF Treaty, instead, we're getting ready to deploy something called the Dark Eagle, which is a hypersonic missile system that's going to go into Germany this year. We reactivated the same artillery brigade that operated the Pershing II missile during the INF Treaty that was done away with. We brought it back to life. It's in Germany right now, preparing to receive Dark Eagle. And when we receive the Dark Eagle, the Russians are going to unveil whatever they have. And now, no, under normal circumstances, you say, well, that's pretty bad. 
but normally you'd say, well, there's, there's little chance of a misunderstanding, right? Well, what do we got going on in Ukraine right now? One giant scenario for misunderstanding. Yep. And so we are creating the, the conditions for the demise of the world. That's why arms yep. control yeah. is so important. And I'll just ask everyone, I'll just ask everyone, I just want to comment, just compare the the picture, the story that Scott just laid out with what we hear in the media, but none of this is ever discussed is off the table. So the INF treaty, for example, when Trump pulled out of it, it got some headlines, but it, it disappeared after a few days because it wasn't nearly as important as Russiagate paranoia yeah. and claiming that Trump was a Russian agent. While meanwhile, he was dismantling an arms control treaty that helps prevent a nuclear holocaust, essentially. But, you know, political imperatives yeah. are more important than than preventing a nuclear holocaust. And now we're seeing one one consequence of this war in Ukraine. Well, now, Russia, let, one let thing I'll just say for, for Russia real quick is um, part of this new European security framework is arms control. Uh, they want the ABM treaty back. They want these anti-ballistic missile systems out. They want the INF treaty back. They when they get rid of Dark Eagle and all that stuff. They want the conventional forces in Europe treaty back. Uh, because the, the important thing about that is that you don't have two armies facing off against each other right across the border. With CFE, you actually define a buffer zone and you pull the bulk of the of the offensive forces back to that buffer zone. So you're going to need the CFE and then you're going to need open skies so that you can create the confidence that nobody's cheating. Uh, so that, you know, everybody says satellites, 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 satellites are wonderful, but you know, what's even better having an airplane with an American and a Russian sitting right next to each other, working in a cooperative fashion to, you know, to, to, to make sure that everybody's complying with what they're supposed to comply. The human factor is so critical here. Well, we're further away from that than ever. And it is incredibly disturbing. Um, thank you everyone for staying with us. This is the most this is the largest audience we've had for any live stream. We're close to 8,000 uh, concurrently right now. The chat is blowing up. Scott, uh, you know, you're delivering a shock and awe performance. I wanted to bring in a colleague <laughs> at the gray zone. Uh, Anya Parampil is in the house. Literally she's in my house upstairs and she had a few uh, questions and comments for you, Scott, Anya fire away. And uh, unmute yourself. Unmute, Anya. Well, yeah, welcome, I Anya. That, I was just saying that it's been a really fascinating conversation so far. While I, I always enjoy catching Scott's analysis, I'm especially fond of his war stories. I think you just add so much when you can you you speak personally about these systems and how our government actually operates, and. I, I just had a theory because I was listening. I wanted to put forward about why we need the Nazis. You were saying, why do we need the Nazis? Because there's no Soviet threat. And what I was thinking is just that it's it boils down what I think to basically just classic great power competition where Putin is actually more threatening than the Red Menace because what he genuinely represents is Russia's hard, cold national interests. And so without the restraints of the Iron Curtain, he's actually built great relationships with Europe, with the middle, with Middle Eastern countries. I mean, look what happened over the past few weeks with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, both refusing calls from Biden and then accepting having conversations with Putin, showing that Putin 
has actually gotten to this position where Europe, this battleground really between the United the United States with love for the European NATO, the Atlantic relation cross Atlantic relationship to continue the way it is, but it's it makes more sense for European countries to have strong relations with Russia, relying on them for energy, relying on them for food. And that, that is threatening to the United States. That's the most dangerous thing that could have happened because it's not about communism. It's just about raw national interests. And now with this decoupling that's happened throughout the war, Russia is demonstrating that it's built up this great power that the United States has never confronted. It was never a threat like that during the Soviet Union. But now Russia and China actually, for the first time ever in history, are great powers that are competing with the United States. And so they need the Nazis. Well, Africa as well, Anya. I mean, we saw Kenya actually go go against the vote against Russia at the UN. Africa as well is a place where Russia is influenced. Uh, So yeah, Argentina and Brazil, they're not playing the sanction game. Yeah, BRICS is basically, they're meeting, they were all just posing, the BRICS ambassadors posing for a photo op with Lavrov in Moscow. So I don't think we've really confronted what that means for us in the United States. Well, we are now that we're seeing inflation. I remember you and Ben were doing a stream a few months back where you started actually talking about how this would have an impact on the U.S. economy, one that we don't understand yet, this rise of of Russia and, and the decoupling that we're now seeing in the financial system the petrodollar is a threat no you're 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 100 and that's you know when we talk about i think we we talked earlier about the um the the rand study and the um the number one uh bait how do you bait ukraine i mean you know how, how do you get russia to be so enraged about what's going on um and the one one way to do that is to um you know, create, let's back this up. You know, when, you know, Putin is famously quoted, I, I say misquoted when he, uh, when he says the greatest um, catastrophe uh, in, in the last century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And everybody stops the quote right there. They say, see, he wants the Soviet Union back. He misses the Soviet Union. Anybody who says that doesn't know anything about Vladimir Putin. He doesn't like the Soviet Union. He hates the Soviet Union. He's, he recognizes it was a failed system. You have to finish the quote because overnight, tens of millions of Russians became homeless. Yeah. All those yeah. Russians that used to live in the Soviet Union and non-Russian republics who viewed Moscow like everybody else in the Soviet Union did as their touchstone were now homeless. They weren't viewing Moscow. They were viewing Konas. They were viewing Kiev. Yeah. Uh, suddenly, and they were helpless because many of these uh, new republics were taken over by nationalists who had a vendetta against Russians. So he said, that's the tragedy. And I, my job is to defend the Russian people, not just the ones in my borders, but outside my borders too. Um, again, you could disagree with that, but I'm just saying that's the accurate representation of what his quote was. So how do you trap a man who believes this? You create a situation where Russians are put in harm's way i.e. in Lugansk and Donetsk, where they're getting shelled for eight years straight. And then you make their enemy not the average Ukrainian, but the most hated thing in Russia, the Nazis. Look, I, I, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the, the former Soviet Union, to Russia. Um, 
every town has a monument to those who died in the war. Every family lost not one member, but dozens of members. Families were wiped out. Extended families have members. This, this is a recurring theme, the, the sense of loss, the sense of patriotism, the sense of necessity of sacrificing everything to defeat the enemy that was Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. This resonates in a real way, a genuine way. So maybe one that we in the West don't understand, we can make fun of it. Oh, look at those old Russians running around uh, in another Victory Day parade. Oh, look at them. You know, they're, they have a monument. Oh, but it's real. Just right on that point, it was something I experienced firsthand at RT, where every Victory Day anchors and correspondents were required to wear the ribbon marking Victory Day. And uh, my, I mean, my colleagues in the United States were always very disgusted by it. They're always huge. Uh, fights in the editorial room about people feeling like they were uncomfortable, even though we were as U.S. citizens on the same side of that war, and it's our victory day too. Uh, but no, it, but honoring the the loss of the of the Russian and the Soviet people was something yeah. that even people who were willing to work for RT were very uncomfortable with. Yeah, and I don't, I, I just don't understand that. But you, you, get to your point, why do we need Nazis? They're the perfect bait. They're the perfect bait. If you want to get Putin and Russia to see red, you know, beyond the Soviet flag, um, <laughs> you put Nazis in Ukraine and you have them attack Russians. So I, 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 I think you have a, a very valid point there. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, uh, by the way, I got a hard stop in 15 minutes. So um We'll, we'll just keep it going uh, unless anyone else wants to to bail out. But I think that's that's part of the um, that's part of the logic of the Azov Battalion and of these figures. Um, put the wolf's angle symbol on their uniforms. Who have this SS inspired um, Sonnenrad, the black sun on the, as their patches, is to provoke to provoke Russians and to just show sheer contempt for them. And it really is a genocidal symbol. Now, when you let them get close to the ethnic Russian community in the Donbass physically and to threaten them, um, you know, I think that is one of the main reasons why this offensive took place was they were getting closer than ever before. And I did want to ask you about this, Scott, there has been a report in the Duma uh, the Russian Duma claiming that Ukraine was actually preparing or engaged in an offensive when Russia invaded on February 24th. I interviewed a uh, former fighter from the Nova Russia Army who's from Texas, Russell Texas Bentley. Uh, two days before, I guess it was February 22nd, I interviewed him. And he said, yeah, in 48 hours, there's going to be a massive Russian assault and they're going to kill all the Nazis is what he said to me. And I was kind of taken aback. And I said, why? And he said, well, they're escalating right now. There are grad rockets falling right near where I'm sitting. Uh, they hit a school last night and a hospital. So was that correct? I mean, or, or was that just kind of uh, the Russian way of justifying the invasion that was going to take place in any case? Well, let's, let's, let's put it this way. I'm a, let's pretend I'm a Ukrainian general for a second. And I'm looking at the Russians putting 200,000 troops around my border. Um, and you can predict, you can look at the map and look at lines of communication, say they're gonna come in from Crimea, they're gonna come in from, from uh, 
Donetsk and Lugansk are going to come in through Kharkov. They're going to come in down by, you know, north of Kiev. Um, so I have my most elite mobile formations. I'd want them in strategic reserve, close to where they're coming, so that I can respond to any Russian incursion, cut them off, launch counterattacks, all this kind of stuff. Or I can take them all and concentrate them in eastern Ukraine, right across from Lugansk and Donetsk. Lugansk and Donetsk. Why would I put all my offensive strike capability in eastern Ukraine if I wasn't going to carry out an offensive strike? Or if I wasn't anticipating a Russian offensive solely from that axis so I could be prepared to, to fight them? Um, the Russians claim that they have intelligence, they've captured documents, and they've, they've actually published the documents. I'm in no position to do forensic analysis on them. Um, they look real, but who knows? I mean, forgeries can be very good, uh, especially in this day and age of information warfare. But they've captured documents that they say show that these forces were going to be used in an offensive against Lugansk and Donetsk uh, to once and for all cleanse it uh, and, and end this problem. To bring the to bring the issue to a head, and they were going to come in with such overwhelming force that even if Russia tried to blunt it, they would be able to defeat uh, the Russians. Um, that is the only thing I can think of as to why Ukraine would put all of its offensive strike power <laughs> across from Donetsk and Lugansk. Of course, they're paying the price today because those guys got fixed and they're in the process of being destroyed and surrounded and eliminated. But I. I I don't doubt for a second when someone says that they um, that that the Ukrainians were planning on uh, on an offensive operation because that's really the only thing that makes sense with the way the Ukrainian forces were uh, were, were disposed of. Okay, gr uh, excellent explanation, um, Aaron. You you had a yeah. So Scott, I wanted to ask you about. It. There's an article in Newsweek magazine in which Bill Arkin interviewed a analyst with the Defense Intelligence Agency and also two Air Force, senior Air Force officers. And everything they say about how Russia has waged this war so far tracks with exactly what you've been saying from the start. So let me just read a couple of quotes. One uh, DI analyst said that the carnage and destruction could be much worse than it is. That's what the facts show. This suggests to me that Putin is not intentionally attacking civilians that perhaps he is mindful that he needs to limit damage in order to leave an out for negotiations. Another uh, source quoted said, a, a U.S. Air Force officer said, I'm frustrated by the current narrative that Russia is intentionally targeting civilians, that is demolishing cities, and that Putin doesn't care. Such a distorted view stands in the way of finding an end before true disaster hits or the war spreads to the rest of Europe. And again, quoting the Defense Intelligence Agency analyst, I know that the news keeps repeating that Putin is targeting civilians, but there is no evidence that Russia is intentionally doing so. In fact, I'd say that Russia could be killing thousands more civilians if it wanted to. Now, this is not to minimize the very real destruction that is happening. Uh, we've seen the pictures of it, but these are the views of current U.S. officials uh, with access to the intelligence. Um, so I'm just wondering how long you think this can last, though, if the U.S. has the influence over Zelensky that it appears to have and if he's being prevented from negotiating an end to the war. How long do you think that this current Russian strategy on this kind of trajectory that is being described here, how long can that last without 
um, Russia eventually turning to causing even far worse damage than it's already caused? Well, I've read that article and um, the, 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 the article is also predicated on the notion that Russia, uh, that their, their military operations are, are stalled and that, um, you know, Russia is using long range strike weapons uh, as a substitute for uh, the close end fight. Um, I don't agree with that. Uh, I, I will say that um, Russia, again, I listen to the Russians. I listen to the Russian leadership. Uh, Putin, when he gave his long rambling speech uh, that led to the, 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 the day before the uh, or the day he gave the order to go in, um, you know, emphasized the um, the connection between the Russia and, and Ukraine, the real connection, historical connection, the the brotherly connection. Um, this isn't a war of hatred. This isn't Russia invading Nazi Germany, where there's visceral hatred for the people you're going up against. This is Russia going into uh, a nation that, that used to be part of the Soviet Union, a, a nation that you know has provided the mothers and fathers to many of the Russians that are in the military today. Um, the the interbreeding, that's a wrong word, but the interaction, the inter whatever, um, between Russia and Ukraine is, is, is real. Um, so this isn't you know, a Russian against the Ukraine. This is a brother against a cousin or a brother against a brother, a nephew against a niece. I mean, this is family. All right. So one, I think it would be a very difficult sell to the Russian military to use standard Russian military tactics and operations against the Ukrainians. You know, line up all your artillery, level everything in front of you and with masked armor, annihilate everything. Because that's what the Russians do. And they're not doing it right now. They're doing the exact opposite. Um, we, my, my wife uh, has friends in the Ukrainian community here who hate Vladimir Putin with a passion. And yet they have, and they have family over there in, in Ukraine and they call to ask how things are doing. And one of the family members was in a village that had been taken over by the Russians early on. And she says, oh my God, did they rape you? Did they rape you? She goes, no, they're the most polite people in the world. They've come up and they've said, you know, we, we, we want, they got the mayor and they said, keep governing the way you're governing. If you need help, let us know. Um, we're not here to bother the civilians. We want to, don't want to do destruction, but we need to go forward here. We need to get through here. So our, we're going to be moving through your village, but we're not here to disrupt. And, uh, and that's exactly what they did. Now, when you do things like this, you leave yourself vulnerable and the Russians have paid a heavy price. Many of their columns have been ambushed. Uh, that otherwise wouldn't have been ambushed if they'd gone in heavy, and hundreds of Russians have died as a result. But the Russians haven't really altered their tactics. They continue to take the soft approach unless the Ukrainians dig in an urban area. When they dig into an urban area, the, the, the Russians have no choice sometimes but to fight. And when they fight, they will apply the firepower necessary to achieve a military victory, but one that still requires the Russians to close with the enemy. That means you're going to put infantry's lives at risk as they clear buildings. Normally, Russia would just pull back. They got thermobaric weapons. Everybody keeps saying that's an illegal weapon. It's not. It's not an illegal weapon. It is if you use it exclusively against civilians. But if I've got an apartment complex where I have snipers and machine gun nests up there, and I have to take three companies of men, men to go in and clear that knowing I'm going to lose 30 guys because that's just the way it is. Or I can stand back and hit it with three thermal barracks and drop the whole thing, kill everybody inside and keep rolling. The military guy in me says, drop the building. And it ain't a violation of the law of war. 
because that's a legitimate military target. Yeah, thermobaric weapon, Scott, it, maybe you can explain because we hear a lot about it, that they're using thermobaric. Uh, it, it kind of like li it, it, it lights up everything with with flame below it, essentially. It's yeah, in a shape kind of like a barrel. I actually found them in Gaza that were used by the Israeli military in heavily uh, densely populated areas. Uh, they're just like these huge barrels when they're used. Well, it depends if it, well, if you, you can use it as a liquid, that means you come in and you'll you'll spray an area with liquid, and then you have a, a, a secondary explosion that goes off that ignites it. And then the resulting overpressure creates a giant fireball with giant overpressure that literally sucks the life out of everything and collapses everything from the overpressure. You can also use, as we do, um, uh, instead of liquid, you can use um, you know this this fine powder explosive type thing that you go in and it and it, it, it turns into a dust. Then you ignite that. It's to say it's like a you've heard about the silos, the grain silos that blow up when uh, when when you have the, the the dust from the wheat up there yeah. and then a spark yeah. hits it. Well, it's a similar concept. But the bottom line is you're creating this instant massive overpressure that destroys everything. Um, and the Russians have a lot of thermobaric weapons that are that are designed for tactical use, and they're not using them uh, as they could. The Russians are paying a heavy price. Uh, to to take some of these civilian areas. But the other thing that's important here is the Russians are deliberately avoiding some civilian areas. Everybody keeps going, why aren't they capturing cities and towns? Why would they capture cities and towns? When you come in with three with, with 200,000 men, do you really want to take 30,000 men to surround a town and, and fight house to house? Or do you just bypass the town? So they we bypass got civilian areas, they maneuver past civilian areas. Their job is to engage the Ukrainian military and destroy it, not to hurt civilians. So the, the Russians are running a completely different campaign. And it's one, a Russian general gave a, um, an interview that most Americans haven't picked up on. But he talked about, you know how we keep saying that you hear in the West, this is a page straight out of the Russian playbook, what they did in Syria. They leveled Aleppo. They leveled everybody. They kill everybody. No, the Russian playbook in Syria is to surround an area and then yeah. bring in humanitarian aid and get the fighters to leave and evacuate so that you don't have to fight in the city. They, they call it the, 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 the Syrian approach. And the Russians have said it. We've come in more using the Syria uh, tactics than we do using our normal tactics. We've got about five minutes. Uh, we've got about five minutes. Last question to Anya. I had a question, Scott, and this gets back to what you were just talking about with the strategy of surrounding an area. I'm not a military analyst, but I, I hear people talking a lot about the the cauldron that Russia is building around <laughs> Kiev, and that if we look at the actual maps and the strategy, it's clear that the the goal is to encircle Kiev to some degree in order to force a surrender. Is that fair? Well, I don't know if they want to encircle Kiev uh, because what's happening right now, if you take a look at that map, um, by threatening Kiev on three of its four sides, you've created a political imperative for the Ukrainian government to reinforce Kiev. That means yeah. that you're going to be taking troops that uh, would otherwise be deployed elsewhere, either down south um, near o Odessa, uh, east to, to support the operations in, uh, in uh, across from uh, Donetsk or up by Kharkiv. Um, but what's happening now, instead of being able to reinforce these areas, you have to 
draw these troops into Kiev to, to defend the capital. So I think the Russians right now are creating a, um, a giant vacuum in Kiev that's sucking in uh, Ukrainian resources while the Russians destroy Ukrainian army right now. When you first said cauldron, I thought you were talking about the one that's developing right now in eastern Ukraine, where all those offensive troops now are trapped. And if you take a look, uh, they're coming down. Um, it, there's an arrow coming down here, an arrow coming up here. The real map should actually show those arrows uh, far more extended. In fact, uh, any either today or tomorrow, they should actually meet and trap the, the Ukrainian army in this pauldron. And so, um, you know, it's this this is the reality of the uh, of the and war. Do you, but, do you think that all of that territory will just go back to being Ukraine by the time this war is over or when this war is over? I know you don't have the playbook or the game plan, but well, but 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 I have listened to the Russian leadership who have said right from the start, we are not here to occupy Ukraine. Uh, and when the Russians first went into these villages and towns, they said, you are Ukrainian villages. Keep your flags flying. If the Russians were there to occupy, do you think they'd let the Ukrainian flag fly in Kherson? No. They're going to let the Ukrainian flag fly because it is Ukraine. And they're respecting that fact. Now, there may be some uh, changes to the way things are administered. I doubt Mariupol will ever again be um, as controlled by the Ukrainian government as it was. I think there's going to be some sort of special autonomous uh, status for that. We know that the Donbass is going to be independent. And we know that Crimea is going to be part of Russia. But the rest of Ukraine, I don't believe Russia has any intention of, uh, of retaining this, of uh, carving Ukraine up. I think Russia wants Ukraine to be a unified, sovereign, neutral state, inclusive of all of its territories, except the ones that they lost because of eight years of lunacy. Well, um, thank you for explaining that. I mean, time will tell, uh, but this, uh, you know, has been extremely illuminating and instructive. I've learned a lot. So thank you so much for your time. Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector and now a columnist. Where can we read more of your work and hear more of what you have to say? Well, I know Aaron and I have had uh, Twitter Twitter debates about the law of war and war crimes and stuff. I'm actually in the process of um, finishing up a pair of articles for Consortium News uh, that that digs into the issue of um, uh, of whether or not the Russia. The first article deals with whether or not Russia uh, carried out a war of aggression against Ukraine, and um, the second one gets into the actual issue of war crimes. Have has Russia committed war crimes uh, in the conduct of their of their campaign. So uh, maybe Aaron, you'll find those interesting and you could come at me and uh, challenge some of the assertions I make. I'll, I'd love to have you on Scott to discuss that. That sounds exactly like the kind of stuff we want to do. Aaron, I think uh, Colonel McGregor and, and, and Scott Ritter are going to have a, a tribunal for you and you might get sent <laughs> to uh, skinning some potatoes in the brig. I mean, no, 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 no. I respect Aaron's <laughs> position tremendously. <laughs> uh, listen, before we go, let me um, extend a congratulations I'm sure you guys all join me in doing this too. Uh, Julian Assange and Stella Morris, who got married today. Oh, good. And that's a ray of light uh, on, in dark times. And so congratulations to them and their whole family. Congratulations. congratulations. We would definitely join them in London if we could. Um, 
so th thank you again, Scott. Uh, thanks, Ani and Aaron, and thanks to everyone in the chats. Uh, this is our most watched stream ever. We uh, got over 8,000 views concurrently and tons of likes. So we're just going to keep bringing you the best guests, the best coverage, uh, print and video, best reporting. Uh, we are going to report what they don't want you to know. And so, uh, you know, stay with us. Peace, everybody. Thanks.